Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. When you're born, you get a ticket to the freak show. When you're born in America, you get a front row seat. It's hard to choose just one quote to begin our episode on George Carlin. He simply had so many great quotes from a comedy career that spanned several decades. But that one may be at the heart of what George Carlin brought to American audiences, a ticket to the freak show of America. The freak show had been happening every day around them for their whole lives. And they knew that on some level. But it took Carlin to really open their eyes to it, to give a voice to their feelings, to clarify their thoughts and suspicions. With his intelligent, profane, silly, and irreverent sensibility that poked fun at language, wasn't above fart jokes, and seriously interrogated the notion of who really had the power in America and why, George Carlin almost single-handedly birthed a new kind of comedy. A kind of comedy that said what it wanted, how it wanted to say it. A kind of comedy that wasn't afraid to use profanity or to be offensive. In fact, being offensive became part of Carlin's brain and brand. By the end of his career, his brand of comedy became one that made audiences think, not just laugh. His jokes, observations, and critiques, they had fucking weight. It wasn't just frivolous, escapist, surface comedy. And if a few people got up and left for the doors, well, fuck those weak-minded cocksuckers and cunts. Their departure was just proof that Carlin was hitting the nerves he wanted to hit. That what he was doing was working. Carlin was the real deal, the realist. But he didn't start out that way. He wasn't immediately an edgy, no-holds-barred comedy juggernaut, not right out of the comedic gates. Carlin walked a long and bumpy entertainment road before he'd become comfortable with his own true inner comedic sensibilities. He was born on May 12, 1937, the son of two Irish Americans in a troubled marriage. Growing up in Morningside Heights, Manhattan, Carlin wreaked havoc with his gang of friends, but also learned how to do impressions of his neighbors, family members, and celebrities that made a lot of people laugh. And he liked that. A lot. His childhood plan was to become a radio disc jockey, then a nightclub comedian, and then a movie star. Pretty sweet plan. Didn't totally accomplish it, but definitely wasn't a failure. To me, he became something so much more impressive than being another star actor. We got a lot of those. We only have one Carlin. 
During a stint in the Air Force, George began working in the late 1950s as a DJ, and soon he would transition into a low-key stand-up comedian known for such whimsical routines as the wonderful wino and the hippy-dippy weatherman. But before he went solo, it was his partnership with Jack Burns, another radio announcer, that would get him out of the nightclub circuit. After achieving some success, after some struggle, the young husband and father discovered that he didn't like the tuxedos and mild-mannered sensibilities of his patrons, looking for clean, safe comedy, didn't like it at all. He found himself entertaining people he'd never want to actually hang out with. Thinking back to a lot of the gigs I did early on in my own comedy career, holy shit, can I, re- can I relate? Carlin wanted to do something more than just be a city-to-city peddling harmless joke salesman. He wanted to do something cutting edge, something that felt true to his artistic voice, something that would make people pay attention, think about what he was saying in a much different way than people hearing, you know, take my wife, please, type one-liners and benign social observations. Beginning in the 1970s, following the lead of his friend and mentor, Lenny Bruce, Carlin transformed himself into a provocative and incisive anti-establishment comic icon, wearing a t-shirt and jeans, long beard, ponytail, rattling off a list of obscenities, and his now infamous seven words you can never say on television routine. That routine would get him in some real hot water. He'd be arrested seven times for performing it, and in 1973, the New York City radio station WBAI-FM triggered a lawsuit by the FCC after it aired a recorded version of a Carlin routine called Filthy Words. This, this landmark Carlin case was finally settled in 1978 by the Supreme Court. In a 5-4 to four ruling, it gave the FCC the ability to censor offensive content in radio and TV broadcasts. And Carlin did not let that stop him. He continued performing, he continued reinventing himself, hiring new management teams when his image got old, reinventing himself again and again, writing material that would speak to new audiences and to new issues of the day. His efforts would get him 14 HBO specials, millions of fans, massive respect from his peers and future generations of comics, and now he's considered one of the most influential comedians ever. He is certainly my number one. No one holds a candle to Carlin in my book of the best to ever do it. No one's even close. The life and times of George Carlin today on a thank you for doing what you did, for I would not have a career today without being able to follow the shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits road you paved edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. I'm just going to assume that most of you have been here before. I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, Fragile Butthole Mocker, Computer Keyboard Repairman, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and sorry Triple M for butchering one of your songs uh, more than normal last week. Dear God. A quick correction uh, from the Catholic episode from two weeks back before I share a few announcements and get going. Uh, Saw several comments about mispronunciations uh, online, like on YouTube, and this time uh, uh, I don't think my mush mouth actually earned them. Uh, It's diocese when it's one. It's diocese when it's plural. Uh, you can look it up. My pronunciation there is, is, is actually correct. Who knew? Uh, the plural version does sound super weird because almost no one ever says the plural version of diocese aloud. Almost always just in print. Uh, so just wanted to throw that if you're hanging on to that one, be like, oh my God. Well, there you go. Uh, hoping many of you bought tickets to the 2023 Burn It Down Theater Tour dates and also the Symphony of Insanity Club dates for the rest of this year, 2022, all over at dancummins.tv. Florida this week, Miami and Palm Beach, then off to Boston and Grand Rapids in October, Austin and Louisville in November, Portland and Minneapolis in December, 
And in so many cities doing theaters in early 2023, Spokane, Boise, Kansas City, St. Louis, Sacramento, Denver, San Antonio, Dallas, New Orleans, and so many more. Omaha, also in there and more. Uh, All at dancummins.tv. Extra excited to tour after going over Carlin's life. Love that this episode drops six years to the day after the first episode of Time Suck. Six years of the suck every Monday with a smattering of bonus episodes thrown in those early years. First episode came out about the lizard people, September 19th, 2016. Holy shit. Uh, Did not plan this episode to be the anniversary episode. This was a voted in topic. So thank you, Patreon Space Lizards. Uh, Love that it lines up with me promoting my first ever stand-up comedy theater tour. Also lines up with, uh, I don't know, really feeling ready to let everything out stand-up wise. Had a great conversation recently with uh, my wife, Lindsay, and my agent. And, uh, you know, I have held back in, in little ways and moments with my comedy over the years for, for fear of pissing off family members, you know, early on, fear of losing work, uh, fear of pissing off fans, maybe more recently damaging my career. Uh, I have, I've been honest with everything I've said, everything I've felt, but, but my comedy has, uh, it, it has been true to who I am, but I have held back kind of like you do when maybe you're around a certain family member or friend who can handle most of what you think, but maybe word that not all of what you think and you don't want to offend them. So I'm going to work, uh, going to work harder now, putting all that behind me to be the most authentic on stage to who I am off stage that I've ever been. Maybe you won't even notice, but I will excited, very excited to see where the road goes from here. Uh, last thing before we take off on this topic, I love so much new merch in the bad magic store this week, always new merch, the art warlock, uh, design juggernaut who will not be stopped. Check out the men in black T and no, we have not partnered with Will Smith for men in black five. Although, Will Smith, if you're listening and you promise not to fucking slap me, uh, I'll make a great alien. If you do slap me, I'm going to fucking hit you back. All right? I know you look big on screen, but I don't think you're bigger than me. Come on. Hire me. I can't make the movie worse than Men in Black International. Uh, Talking the real Men in Black today, throwback to uh, episode 87 from 2018. Uh, Who or what are they? Aliens? Extra top secret government officials? Specializing in suppresses UFO-related information? Modern folklore? Absolute and utter wackadoodle crystal-powered horseshit. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com. See what they look like, at least, if we don't find out what they are, uh, with Logan's very cool new design. New design. And now it is Carlin O'Clock. Again, so glad our Patreon spaces voted this uh, topic in. Not the first comic we sucked. Uh, We've also covered Robin Williams. But Williams, while he started off as a comic, while he remained a comic throughout the entirety of his career, uh, where he really shined for me, and I would argue also for most of his fans, was on screen as an actor. Uh, both dramatic and comedic. Incredible actor. Such a performer. Uh, Carlin ended up being more of a specialist. Whereas uh, Williams was spread out with uh, film roles, you know, many, many film roles, TV roles, voiceover roles, etc. Also did stand-up. Carlin, for most of his career, focused almost exclusively on kicking out more and more stand-up. And, and his stand-up, while performed, you know, brilliantly, it, it was more about the words and ideas conveyed behind the performance as opposed to Williams, where the performance was the most impressive part of the act. Right? It wasn't what he was saying, it was how he was saying it in a way only he could, that intense, manic performance style of his. Carlin's style was about what he was saying, his word choice. No wasted words in a stand-up, the words chosen so powerful, every last syllable thought out, uttered for maximum comedic, philosophic effect. So let's look into what Carlin was saying and meet the man behind the word. Before our timeline today, where we will really get to know this modern philosopher. Uh, first, an overview of why we're talking about him. Also meet his primary influence, uh, Bruce Lee. Carlin was a huge fan of martial arts and a second-degree black belt before he died in Jeet Kune Do. 
He once bested Chuck Norris in an exhibition match and broke a young Steven Seagal's arm. I fucking wish that was true. It's very fun for me to imagine. No, Lenny Bruce was Carlin's primary influence, of course, not Bruce Lee. Be fun if it was both of them. Uh, though many associate Carlin with this kind of uh, with the kind of long, prestigious career he would be uh, known for by the time of his death in 2008, Carlin's path, at least to himself, well, to himself, uh, what different points to his peers, the industry, filled with a lot of uncertainty. As a child, he had aspirations of working on the radio, beginning becoming a nightclub comedian, leveraging that into making movies. He would make the first uh, part of that a reality in July of 1956, working at the radio station KJOE in Shreveport, Louisiana, at age 19 while serving in the Air Force. Love that we are talking about Louisiana again, by the way, this week. Definitely have a, spe- a special place in my heart for that state. Uh, Carlin, a, a much better association to have for Louisiana than last week's Ronnie Joe and his broken butterscotch butthole episode. Uh, check out this early clip of Carlin hosting his AM 1460 radio program in Shreveport in 1957. He is just 20 years old at the time of this broadcast. He's never done stand-up yet. Can't have any fucking idea of who he is going to uh, metamorphose into later on. production value okay then solid how you doing lots of music coming up for you between now and 545 got the brand new everly brothers record and we'll be playing both sides of it for you in addition to listening to elvis's latest came out this week and we'll get things started with the new one by chuck berry stick around good things happening here on 1480 at carlin's corner just spin of records spin of records back then uh yeah and again love the production value that went into uh, an intro for a show that honestly i don't think many people listen to he was only on a few hours a week and not uh, during any important time, you know, regarding ratings. Uh, okay, afterwards, and we'll get into uh, much more specific dates and reasons for uh, moving, uh, you know, in the timeline for this stuff, uh, moving forward in the timeline. But in 1959, when Carlin was working at KXOL in Fort Worth, he met a fellow DJ, Jack Burns, a former Marine, and a guy who will later go on to write and produce on shows like Hee Haw and The Muppet Show. Loved watching Hee Haw with Pop Ward growing up when I was little. Had no idea, of course, that... Uh, a former associate of Carlin was working on that show. May have had a bit of a crush on Misty Rowe, the perky blonde cast member with a great smile and great uh, other stuff as well. Hail Lucifina. Uh, together with Jack, Carlin starts developing comedy routines for an eventual nightclub act. The pair would move to Hollywood to record an album, work at uh, brand new radio station K-Day, a station that's still around operating out of Redondo Beach, broadcasting to the greater LA area. Uh, ever since it launched in 1961, uh, before then quitting to work in nightclubs as Burns and Carlin. I like that Carlin started off in a two-man show. I was in a two-man show for a while in the early years. Cobb Dog, Crow on bass, Dan on guitar. Some musical comedy with David Crow. We did all right. We did some sketches, some musical comedy. Maybe not great, but all right. Had a lot of fun. Uh, Burns and Carlin stayed together for about two years. They played some good clubs, got some good press exposure, even made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. Carlin's first of many Tonight Show appearances. Uh, they worked mainly in mainstream clubs, but their act did have a bit of an, a hint of an anti-establishment flavor. They made fun of politicians, parodied the type of hard-talking uh, hard Irish adults they'd grown up around, uh, exposing their upper-class upper clientele to a middle-class sensibility. 
but it still wasn't what George really wanted to do. He wanted to push things much further. It would take him a while to get there, but he was already thinking about it. He also didn't want to be in a double act doing sketches. He wanted to be solo doing stand-up. After splitting with Burns in 1962, uh, he had to start over in a sense. He didn't experience much success at first, uh, wasn't continuing to get TV exposure. He'd taken a risk, looked like it was not going to pay off for a little while. In 1963, he branched out into folk clubs, coffee houses, where audiences were more progressive, where he could develop a balance of different material types he felt capable of performing. He uh, balanced mainstream material that frankly got him work with the more outspoken, irreverent routines that were closer to his heart and more popular with the coffee house, beatnik crowd. Uh, During this time, he'd perform frequently at the Cafe A-Go-Go in Greenwich Village, Manhattan, spending time with the likes of Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor luminaries. By performing live in smaller counterculture venues, George found himself in a sort of comedic laboratory, a laboratory where he could experiment with new things and really work out what was funny. Some of his most famous early bits would be born there. The Indian Sergeant, the Wonderful Wino, the Hippy Dippy Weatherman, all perfected around this time. In 1965, Carlin's bet on himself began to really pay off. He began to get extensive TV exposure. 58 appearances in 1965 and 66 alone. Mostly on Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. Very popular shows. Network spots during that period included The Hollywood Place, Jimmy Dean, Roger Miller, Carlin's first few Tonight Show appearances. Uh, his first few solo ones in total in his total career he'd appear uh 100 on 130 tonight show episodes uh most of those would come later he'd be a regular on various shows and then try and transition to actual acting in 1967 but found that he didn't really like it with this new wrinkle in his childhood plan it was supposed to be radio dj to comedian to actor george now didn't know uh what was next though he made 80 tv appearances between 1967 and 1980 he didn't really like the heavily censored somewhat mechanical environment of TV production, so many sponsor considerations, network censorship, and production limitations, and the waiting around, the aimless banter, it, it bothered him, it bored him. He really just wanted to be himself, not just a heavily sanitized version of himself that would appeal to middle America's sensitive sensibilities. Uh, during this time, he worked headlined in all the major nightclubs across the U.S., uh, including the Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas, where he ended up earning a three-year contract an association that later proved significant in an unexpected way when he lost that contract. Uh, he became popular, started making great money, but his material from around this time it had become pretty bland and safe, at least he felt it had. The more rebellious, anti-establishment tone of some of his earlier routines had disappeared from the coffee houses. Increasingly, he felt bored and dissatisfied with his material, but he was making good money. He was maybe worried he was going to lose it, you know. so he started playing it more and more safe. He chose to stay away from certain subject matter, by 1970, his self-imposed restrictions no longer applied, though. His acting and career uh, put on hold. The country was changing. The people who had inhabited the folk clubs and coffee houses in the early 60s were now the counterculture, a large ready-made audience that shared many of Carlin's out-of-step attitudes and opinions with mainstream America. He can now take more risks and actually, uh, you know, maybe get some commercial appeal doing so. Felt like the time was right to stop holding back. Carlin began to drift into the counterculture's direction. He began to uh, become the person he'd long wanted to publicly be. With his new, much more irreverent tone came a change in appearance. Gone were the tuxedos he performed in in nightclubs. Now he sported blue jeans and a beard. Fuck yeah, bro. Get it, George. (laughs) This new, much more authentic George Carlin didn't sit well with his middle-class audiences, nor with the nightclub owners who were paying him every week, though. A series of incidents with audiences and owners that year culminated in his being fired from the Frontier Hotel in September for saying shit. What shit did he say? Literally just the word shit. Nothing more. 
I'd like to travel back in time and find those audiences that were so offended by shit that they complained to walked out, uh, tied to chairs and make them listen to the Albert Fish episode. Peanut butter. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Or actually just about any episode of Time Suck. Maybe one with Captain Whiskerhorn, owner proprietor of Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium, tax shop and saddlery, talking about having a sale on butt plugs, whips, stud chains and shit. Hi-yo, sarsaparilla, away! Rather than beg for his contract back and promise to ease up on the filth language, Carlin doubled down on the counterculture. He went back to smaller clubs, took a huge pay cut to do so, uh, introduced them to a new, more authentic persona. The eventual results of this would be FM and AM, an album that would win him a granny. <laughs> granny? One of me, he was given a grandma. He was given someone's grandma. They were like, fucking great job with that album. Take her. Take Edith. She's yours. No, he, was, uh, he won a Grammy. AM was one side of the record, which paid uh, homage to his old routines and associated itself with the more conservative AM radio. FM on the other side was his counterculture leanings, the side that didn't agree with the establishment. Seen as very uh, cool, artistic, new kind of uh, album. It was the first of four successive gold albums that Carlin uh, recorded for Little David Records during the first half of the 70s. During that time, his new material would lead to him being arrested on obscenity charges, spurring a whole Supreme Court case. This case would be one of the things that would make freedom of speech, freedom to say something, even if it offended people, so motherfucking important to George Carlin. And something so important to so many people, so many comics in particular ever since, including myself. Obscenity charges in the 50s and 60s were a big deal. No one would exemplify that more than Carlin's mentor, his chief role model in the comedy world, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce, the son of a shoe clerk and dancer, Long Island-born Leonard Schneider, took the stage name Lenny Bruce to sound less Jewish, uh, turned entertainment following a teenage stint in the U.S. Navy during World War II, made his first appearance as an MC at a Brooklyn nightclub shortly after he came back from the service. Bruce's early work, like Carlin's early work, was traditional, focusing on inoffensive material like celebrity parodies and impressions, earned him bookings on a variety of radio programs. Uh, but Bruce, like Carlin later, grew dissatisfied with this material that while it got laughs, it wasn't saying anything. It wasn't addressing any real problems that upset and interested him in his personal life. A fan of beat generation artists and writers and a music devotee, he was deeply influenced by the free-flowing improvisational nature of jazz, which he thought could, uh, he could adapt for his stage performances, along with his own dark satirical view of then-taboo topics like politics, religion, race, sex, and drugs. Standard fare today. After marrying and moving to California, Bruce began workshop at his new act, gaining both ardent fans and hateful detractors. A lot of silly, oversensitive... Uh, Cocksuckers were shocked not only by his foul language, but by his subject matter. Gosh dang, gosh dang, what did he just say? Oh, oh my heck, this stranger's powerful words have hurt my precious heart. As his career progressed, no topic or person will be spared. As he railed against the perceived hypocrisy of establishment figures and launched scathing criticisms of religious, social, and political leaders. He'd even make fun of first ladies like Eleanor Roosevelt or Jacqueline Kennedy, leading the mainstream media to brand him as a sick comic. What a sick man, mocking our first ladies. How dare anyone insult our royalty? He also insulted various presidents. How dare anyone mock our rightful lords here in the U.S.? By the mid-1950s, Bruce was performing across the country, had released a series of comedy albums, but he wasn't drawing much of a crowd. His increasing notoriety and refusal to conform resulted in his being blacklisted for many popular TV shows due to fears that his provocative act would offend middle America. How dare any American adults have to hear words or concepts that might upset them? The easily offended, 
currently deemed the woke crowd. They've always been around. I'm sure they always will. What a sad way to spend your time on this ride we call life, bouncing from moment to moment of needless, easily avoidable outrage. Someone punches you in the face. Yeah. Yeah, get upset. Someone says cunt in a nightclub. Fucking chill out, Karen. Why never? Oh my. And then to demand that someone not be booked again because he said a word you don't like in a nightclub or be sent to jail. Doing that makes you a cunt. Not wanting anyone to hear the words that upset you as opposed to just no longer supporting the act, saying those things by just not buying their albums or a ticket to their show or listening to their podcast. Despite getting blacklisted, Bruce continued to make a name for himself. And in February of 1961, he played a landmark gig at New York's Carnegie Hall. Many historians consider that to be the apex of his career. This extra exposure felt great in the moment, but made him more of a target to some than ever. His controversial act and lifestyle had caught the eyes of too many law enforcement agencies across the country. And he would be arrested on drug charges. Uh, in Philadelphia, obscenity charges in San Francisco in late 1961. He was acquitted there. 1962 drug charge in Los Angeles also dropped. But then in 1963, was convicted of obscenity in Chicago. After being arrested on stage, he'd be arrested so many times on stage. In increasing, uh, in increasing ill health due largely to his looming legal troubles and to a worsening drug addiction, Bruce decided to return to New York where powerful forces, unbeknownst to him, were coalescing against him. Manhattan District Attorney Frank Hogan, working in conjunction with local church officials, including Archbishop and Cardinal Francis Spellman, began their own investigation of Bruce. For fuck's sake. How many pedo priests did Spellman protect and relocate between 1939 and 1967 while he reigned as Archbishop? Dozens? Hundreds? And then he joins a group to take down Lenny Bruce for saying naughty words and critiquing the church? The audacity. A biography about Spellman will be published in 1984 titled American Pope. It included several pages initially arguing that Spellman had been a known active homosexual in certain social circles based on multiple anonymous sources. Uh, the draft of the book was covered in the press. However, the final published version removed that material, replacing it with just two sentences. For years, rumors abounded about Cardinal Spellman being a homosexual. As a result, many felt and continue to feel that Spellman, the public moralist, may well have been a contradiction of the man of the flesh. Why were all those pages removed? Legal pressure from the Catholic Church. Same church that Carlin would feel pressured to, uh, that, that Carlin, um, you know, uh, felt uh, pressure to silence him as well. Journalist Michelangelo Signorelli describes Spellman as one of the most notorious, powerful, and sexually voracious homosexuals in the American Catholic Church's history. Signorelli reported that Cooney's manuscript initially contained interviews with several people with personal, intimate knowledge of Spellman's homosexuality. Additionally, Kurt Gentry, biographer of J. Edgar Hoover, said that Hoover's FBI files had numerous allegations that Spellman was a very active homosexual. Do I care that that guy was gay? Nope, I sure don't. Do I care that that guy was very likely actively but privately gay, but then publicly condemned homosexuality and tried to destroy free speech advocates like Lenny Bruce? Oh yeah, I care very much. Fuck that traitor's coward. He didn't have to stay with the church that denied his own sexuality. He could have lived an authentic life like Lenny Bruce was brave enough to do. Instead, that fucking coward helped bring Bruce down. Maybe what really bothered him was that Bruce was doing what he was too spineless and weak to do himself. And he didn't like the reflection that Bruce mirrored back on him. Back to Bruce now, when he was booked at the popular Greenwich Village nightclub Cafe Agogo in spring of 1964, where George Carlin would later play, uh, also play, undercover detectives uh, recorded secretly two of his shows which they then presented to a grand jury to obtain an obscenity indictment. This is a place where people had to pay to listen. In early April, Bruce was arrested, charged with violating New York Penal Code 
barring obscene material that could aid in the, quote, corruption of morals of youth and others. Faced a maximum punishment of three years in prison. Outrageous. This is going on while U.S. soldiers are already literally dying over in Vietnam fighting for freedom. Brave young men fighting apart to extend the ideals of the U.S. Constitution, which is supposed to provide free fucking speech, literally in the very First Amendment. Are there limits in that amendment? Yeah, common sense ones. The government may generally restrict the time, place, or manner of speech. If Lenny stormed into a daycare uninvited, started saying shit to the kids that their parents didn't want him to hear, you know, how you little uh, cunt, uh, dirty diaper, cocksuckers enjoying snacks. Okay, fair, that's fucked up. Get the man a ticket, write him up. But he was at a nightclub, again, where people paid to listen to him. Grown-ups paid. A private business where everyone there knew what they were getting into. If you can't say shit there, where outside of your own home can you say it? Nowhere. And if you make saying it in a nightclub illegal, well, what's next? Your home. That's, that's the last, that's the last uh, you know, refuge. Are we America at that point or the Soviet Union? North Korea? To me, one way to honor the sacrifices the brave veterans have made is to be as free as fucking possible. I have guns, drugs, and uh, I sell kinds of shit. Thankful I live in a nation where the police can't censor me or kick down my door without a warrant, even though I said what I just said here, and take whatever shit I happen to possess. Maybe I'm joking. Maybe I'm not, though. Uh, If America ever becomes uh, as anti-freedom again as it was during the early 60s, I honestly hope a revolution brings us to our fucking knees so something better can rise up. Hail Nimrod and fuck censorship. Fuck those assholes who came after Bruce. Bet those Gestapo shitheads consider themselves real flag-waving patriots when they did so. Uh, Not only was Bruce arrested, but the club's two owners also arrested merely for allowing filthmeister Bruce to perform that material. So how naughty was this material? Well, here are some of the bits that got him in trouble. His act included uh, two bits about first ladies. Mentioned he talked about them. Bruce declared that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, quote, Eleanor Roosevelt has the nicest tits of any lady in office. Come on, how's that offensive? Uh, crude. Okay, but offensive? Do any of you tit-possessing meat sacks out there not want to have nice tits? Anyone pissed off that they have fantastic tits? Moping around, wishing you had saggy old windsock titties, always staring to the floor like their self-esteem is too low to ever look anyone in the eye. I don't think that anyone is dying to have sad titties. What Bruce said, wasn't it really kind of a compliment? Uh, Commenting on captions relating to photos of Jacqueline Kennedy crawling on the trunk of the convertible in Dallas after her husband, President JFK, had been shot, which suggested she was trying to get help, Bruce called the captions bullshit. In Bruce's opinion, Mrs. Kennedy, quote, hauled ass to save her ass. Just what anyone would do under those circumstances. Again, is that really offensive? Insensitive, sure. But offensive? Yeah, the word offensive is subjective. But this is the kind of shit uh, said in a nightclub that would land you in jail? In America? How dare Bruce suggest that Jackie react like a normal human? In another bit called Red Hot Enema, Bruce argued that the prospect of putting a funnel up his ass containing hot lead would cause Gary Powers a CIA spy pilot who had recently been captured from his downed U-2 plane by the Soviets to quickly lose his bravado and basically spill U.S. secrets. Yeah, I imagine it would burn the bravado out of literally anyone. In a bit called Pissed in the Sink, Bruce told the tale of a man with a bad leg trying to avoid a trek down the hall to the bathroom. He gets caught urinating in the sink by his roommate who suggests he uses the, the ledge instead. He does so only to find himself the focus of a crowd of anxious onlookers and firemen who believe he's ready to commit suicide. Uh, that one just sounds funny to me. It's a great premise. Uh, to me, absurd and hilarious, not offensive. The most outrageous of the bits that night to the uh, to the court, to the officers, uh, was uh, guys are carnal. 
in which Bruce suggests that men are oversexed creatures willing to have a one-night stand with just about anything that moves, including a chicken. Another solid premise. Uh, I've said so much worse, so many times. The closure of my latest special was a 10-ish minute piece about fucking a banana peel. Finally, he also told a bit t- uh, titled to, to is a preposition, come is a verb. It ends with him saying, quote, now if anyone in this room or the world finds those two words decadent, obscene, immoral, immoral, amoral, is asexual, the words to come really make you feel uncomfortable. If you think I'm rank for saying it to you, you, the beholder, think it's rank for listening to it, you probably can't come. And then you're of no use because that's the purpose of life, to recreate it. Well said, Lenny. Now, if that's not your cup of tea, fine. But is it so horrible? The government needs to intervene and arrest this man. So we can't keep saying this shit. How outrageous, right? How an American, at least on what I consider to be American, at it's uh, best free speech being one of the cornerstones of being American to me. Uh, dozens of notable artists signed a petition denouncing Bruce's arrest, including actors Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, uh, writers Susan Sontag, Norman Mailer and James Baldwin, singer Bob Dylan, and a bunch of other fellow comics, including Woody Allen. Not a big Woody Allen fan, but I'm glad he stepped in there. Uh, it read in part, whether we regard Bruce as a moral spokesman or simply as an entertainer, we believe he should be allowed to perform free from censorship or harassment. Simply put, and 100% correct. Bruce hired a team of prominent First Amendment attorneys, including uh, Ephraim London, who would later argue a number of other free, speeches, free speech cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. When Bruce's trial began that July, the jam-packed courtroom listened as the prosecution laid out his case, including audio recordings of Bruce's performances and reenactments of his routines by undercover cops, including what prosecutors alleged was an act of simulated onstage masturbation. Egad! Not a simulated jerk sesh! How dare Lenny reenact what 99.9% of men without sexual disabilities have done thousands of times in their lives! Bet every dude in that courtroom was 100% intimately familiar with jerking off. The hypocrisy, right? The irrationality of uptight moralists never just fails to, to irritate me. What is big deal with jerk? Maybe I have, uh, I jerk more Achilles. I will be no execute and could still be jerking soft geriatric shamecock today. Thank you for weighing in, Chikatilo. It's a very astute observation. Uh, Bruce responded by critiquing their poor performance of his work in the courtroom. That's funny. It's all in the delivery. Uh, His team called a number of witnesses, including literary critics and psychologists, aimed at proving that while Bruce's material may have been offensive, it was not sexually provocative enough to warrant a conviction under the wording of the New York state statutes. One of the most prominent witnesses was Dorothy uh, Kilgallen, conservative New York newspaper columnist, columnist, uh, whose social position and political beliefs Bruce's team had hoped would counterbalance his anti-establishment notoriety. Took three months for the three-judge panel to issue its verdict. In November of 1964, Bruce, who had already fired his attorneys now, uh, was convicted, as was one of the club owners, Howard Solomon. Solomon's sentence would be later overturned. Bruce's would not be. At a hearing a month later, Bruce launched into an hour-long defense, but was sentenced to four months in a workhouse anyway. <laughs> Dangerous to speak your mind back then, even in a private nightclub setting. Uh, Bruce remained out on bail, pending an appeal, but was virtually unemployable now. What few dates he uh, did book could barely cover his drug habit or legal bills, which continued to pile up as an embittered Bruce filed a series of unsuccessful civil suits against his opponents. On August 3rd, 1966, Bruce, still waiting on a trial to appeal his obscenity conviction, was found dead of a morphine overdose at his L.A. home, just 40 years old. Many felt that the conviction, the fear of being arrested again just for doing his act the way he wanted to do it, is what set him into a downward spiral with drugs. 
the U.S. government, in its infinite fucking wisdom, had literally decided it was illegal for Lenny Bruce to be Lenny Bruce on stage. I wonder how many lives were saved by, you know, no one having to hear Bruce's filth anymore. I'm going to guess zero. I'm going to guess that uh, had they let him do what he did, literally no one would have suffered even a little bit other than having their, you know, night ruined possibly because they chose to be oversensitive, weak-minded crybabies who let some other uh, person's joke hurt their precious little fucking hearts. Bruce's struggles and his destruction did not go unnoticed by young George Carlin, who was his friend, a good friend at the time, just 29 years old, still years away from embracing his role as a sort of counterculture jester slash holder of Bruce's social critiquing flame. Not even a decade after Bruce's death, Carlin would later see his own obscenity case go all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed years of earlier precedent in the landmark case Miller versus California, which broadened First Amendment protection for material like Bruce's based on an argument of the material's underlying literary, artistic, and social value. Fucking insane that we needed the Supreme Court to rule that free speech needs to be free in 1973, almost 200 years after the First Amendment was adopted in 1791. Uh, Just a couple years later, Carlin was stuck again, not by the government this time, but by himself. In the mid-70s, he was dealing with a crippling cocaine addiction, health problems, his wife Brenda's severe alcoholism, a more and more distant relationship with his own daughter, and no clue how to fix any of this. He was also struggling creatively. He had become a parody of the man that rose to counterculture fame in the early 70s. Other comedians had started to make fun of him, write him off as an old hippie, overly fixated with the usage of certain words, drugs, other shit that... uh, They didn't care about. That was passe now. And that really pissed Carlin off. He cut way back on the coke. Eventually, he would quit entirely. His wife stopped drinking. He became a better husband, better father. Creatively, he chose to do everything in his power to show how talented he still was to the world. And he took a fuck them all attitude. I like it. He hired a new management team, uh, began to do specials on a new network with a similar ideology to his own home box office, HBO. HBO didn't launch until the end of 1972. In total, Carlin would go on to have 14 HBO specials, including the highly regarded Carlin at Carnegie, taped at New, York, New York's Carnegie Hall in 1982, the groundbreaking Jammin' in New York, broadcast live in 1992 from the Paramount Theater at Madison Square Garden. To date, George Carlin's 14 HBO specials have garnered three Emmy, Emmy nominations, six Cable Ace Awards, and Carlin picked up two additional Emmy nods, nominations Excuse me, in the early 90s, playing the part of Mr. Conductor. In 45 episodes of the critically acclaimed PBS kids show, yes, kids show, Shining Time Station. Ah, that's very funny to me. And he wouldn't stop there. 1997, Carlin ventured into a new field as Hyperion published his first book, Brain Droppings, a collection of original routines, one-liners, commentaries, and essays. I have that book around the house somewhere. In hardcover and paperback, the book spent a total of 40 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, has sold nearly 900,000 copies. The book on tape version, read by Carlin himself, won the 2001 Grammy in Best Spoken Comedy category. A second book, Napalm and Silly Putty. I have that book too. Uh, written in the same style as the first, published in April of 2001. Likewise, a huge success reached the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list in its second week. The paperback edition, published a year later, has done equally well, and together both formats have now sold over uh, 600,000 copies. Once again, the audiobook CD version garnered another Grammy. Fourth overall for Carlin. Third book would be published in the fall of 2004, including more of Carlin's trademark observations of the English language, one of his biggest comedic strengths. Total sales of his books would number just over 2 million copies. Meanwhile, the spring of 2004, Carlin had a substantial role as Affleck's father in Kevin Smith's Jersey Girl, starring Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. His, seven, uh, his uh, excuse me, 11th feature film, most significant role thus far. In addition, he, was, he uh, performed extensive voiceover work in three animated films, including Pixar's Cars. 
In the midst of all that, Carlin still managed to perform roughly 90 concerts around the country each year, selling nearly a quarter of a million tickets. Additionally, made about eight visits annually to Las Vegas, where he performed four-day weekends at the Orleans Hotel, considered by many comics the best comedy venue in Las Vegas. Uh, Orleans. I don't know why I said it weird. Uh, in the spring of 2008, Carlin uh, broadcast his 14th last HBO comedy special, George Carlin, It's Bad For You, and released a CD of the same name. In 2007, I watched him perform in Indianapolis, uh, preparing material for that special. Uh, a performance I'll never forget. Very inspiring. Uh, I don't know what I love more, watching my comedic idol murder with new bits he was still crafting or watching him bomb in front of his own audience. It was a nice reminder that stand-up is always hard. Even, even the best to ever do it, still struggle to find the right words and rhythms to turn a loose idea into a polished and hilarious bit. Carlin was trying to figure out how to make his new ideas funny until the day he died, literally. He was working on a memoir, a book of essays, and a one-man show when he died on June 22nd, 2008 at the age of 71 of heart failure. It is hard to overstate how prolific this guy was, how much he pushed the boundaries of the art of stand-up and how successful he was at doing it. But he wasn't always successful. Path not always smooth sailing. He found himself in many career ruts, looking for a way out, trying to think of the next step to take himself, to get himself to where he wanted to be. And where he wanted to be was fucking legendary. He wasn't comfortable settling on what had worked in the past. He didn't consider himself successful just because he made good money. He never wanted to play it safe. He wanted to be his true, authentic self on stage and have enough people love him for him to be able to have a career in comedy as someone not afraid to share the unbridled truth, never afraid to hold a mirror up to the country he both loved and hated, a mirror that reflected back all of the cultural sickness so many of us are still so fucking afraid to acknowledge. He wouldn't settle. He kept working on his craft, honing it, still honing it in his 70s. Fuck, that makes my comedy dick so hard. I cannot express with words how much I appreciate what Carlin did for comedy, how much it means to me. So let's really get to know him now. Let's discover how he did this, how a young boy from Manhattan became one of comedy's most enduring stars. Let's jump into today's Time Suck timeline. After, of course, our sponsor break, you know, even George Carlin did commercials, by the way. Gotta say, find out how it made me feel good. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers if you've learned anything it's that there's always a catch so when you hear that mint mobile wireless plans are 15 dollars a month when you purchase a three-month plan 
you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now we're back to talk about a guy who did have different sponsors at different times, but also despised corporate America while also selling concert tickets almost exclusively to people working in corporate America. George was a capitalist, just one who hated a lot of the bullshit that can come along with big business, the government, and religious institutions. Let's actually get to know him now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. George Carlin would be born May 12, 1937 in Manhattan. Just five years after my grandpa, Papa Ward. Holy shit, that blows my mind. Three years before my grandma Betty. I can't imagine my grandma ever getting as a reference to George Carlin. Uh, my grandpa certainly never did. I don't think. 
But if he uh, could have got past his disdain for profanity, I think he would have loved Carlin's messages. Uh, George was the son of Mary Carlin, a secretary, and Patrick John Carlin, an advertising manager for the newspaper The Sun. Mary was the first of six children, and though she'd been sickly as a child, her parents would give her a glass of Guinness every night to make her strong. Evidently, it worked. Or she got better despite them doing that. Probably the latter thing. Might have made her a little crazy, too. Or maybe being raised by parents who gave their babies a glass of stout beer every day when uh, the age was still in the single digits did that. Ten years old, she sent a box of horse shit to a girl who didn't invite her to a birthday party. Literal horse shit. She was tough and vivacious. She liked to dance, play piano. Outside of some marital abuse, uh, she did eventually run away from. She didn't take shit from anyone. She was tough. So she liked to read mostly classic literature, uh, would attend Broadway shows. Carlin would later say that his, his attraction to low culture, comedy, TV, radio, would be an attempt at rebellion away from what his mother liked. By the mid-30s, his father, Patrick, was a successful businessman, national advertising manager, well-respected uh, guy who'd even won the National Public Speaking Contest held by the Dale Carnegie Institute. 1935, Uh, with his speaking engagements, he could bring in $1,000 a week. Clearly, Carlin may have uh, had some genetic help when it came to being a gifted orator. Uh, Patrick's best speech was The Power of Mental Demand, which got his title from a book written in 1913 by uh, Herbert Edward Law. He would shout at the listeners to put it to work, a performance that many described as electric. He called his wife Mary Pepper because of her spunky personality, and she called him Ever Ready. Because of his voracious sex drive. <laughs> Apparently quite a few times she would hear him call from another room saying, Mary, is this yours? And then when she would go in, she would find him standing nude, holding his hard dick with ice tongs. God, that's really funny to me. Uh, looks like Carlin may have uh, uh, had a gen- genetic predisposition towards having an absurd and vulgar sense of humor. I need to remember to, uh, to try that with Lindsay. Hail to I'm not sure it would lead towards actual sex. It might. I think it would definitely get a good laugh. Uh, she could also probably call me ever ready. God, I love sex. If we didn't have work or responsibilities, about three times a day sounds delightful. Never gets old. Thank you, Nimrod, for allowing my dick to still work. I enjoy it very much. Don't take it from me. Uh, I don't care how many books I don't write or uh, extra hours of comedy I don't create because of it. It is the best waste of time ever. Uh, George Carlin will become Mary and Patrick Permaboner's second son. His older brother, Patrick Jr., had been born six years earlier in 1931. Patrick will never list the uh, junior designation to his name, guessing he uh, shied away from that label because he hated his dad. He certainly did hate his dad based on interviews of Patrick. I watched in the fantastic two-part docuseries uh, on Carlin, George Carlin's American Dream. Patrick would say in the doc that his mom told him that the sex was great in, his, uh, in her marriage to his father, but that everything else was terrible. Uh, Mary would only have two kids. In his biography, Last Words, published in 2009, Carlin would begin his story uh, a little earlier in August of 1936 when he was conceived in a damp, sand-flecked room of Curly's Hotel in Rockaway Beach, New York. Carlin's birth was unlikely from the very start. For one, his mom was 40, his dad was 48, and this wasn't a time when uh, uh, women had kids in their 40s nearly as often as they do today. And just prior to his conception, uh, the two had been separated for more than a year separations weren't abnormal in their six-year-long marriage. They'd get together, break up, wash, rinse, repeat, which was a result of Patrick's struggles with alcoholism and his drunken, sometimes violent rages. Mary was Patrick's second wife. His first had died of a heart attack not long after one of his beatings, as in he probably killed her. Despite this, Mary was convinced that her hot-blooded man would not hurt her because she had four brothers and her dad was a police officer. At least she was, she was convinced of that for a while. Mary would uh, tell George later that Patrick hit her only once. George's bu- brother, Patrick Jr., though, wouldn't be able to say the same. 
From the time he was two, Patrick Sr. regularly beat Patrick Jr. with a hard-heeled leather bedroom slipper. Another reason that George's birth was unlikely was that his mom had had several abortions between his brother's birth and his own. She'd visit a man known as Dr. Sunshine in Gramercy, uh, Gramercy, Gramercy Square and undergo a procedure known as a DNC, right, dilation and uh, cutitage, several times. She contemplated undergoing that same procedure with the embryo that would become George Carlin, which is so funny to me. The man who later wrote so many fantastic abortion jokes uh, nearly aborted himself. Obviously, with George, Mary had second thoughts, uh, had them just barely in time. She would say later that she saw the face of her deceased mother in a painting on the waiting room wall of the abortion clinic. As a lifelong Catholic, she took that as a sign that her mom was expressing disapproval. Mary left the office quickly. Wow, that is some irony. The religion that Carlin would uh, so despise, also the one that allowed him to live. In October of 1936, shortly after Mary would have uh, had the procedure, she and Patrick decided to try and make their marriage work again. They moved into an apartment at 155th and Riverside, Manhattan, May 1937. She was uh, taking a walk along the new George Washington Bridge when she felt the beginnings of labor pains. May 12th, George would be delivered by Dr. James A. Harar, same doctor who once delivered the Lindbergh baby. Uh, topic of the Lindbergh baby uh, kidnapping, one we've been sitting on uh, for a while here. Preliminary research done over a year ago. I would have uh, recorded it already, but I just want to wait a few more years just to make sure that baby doesn't still turn up. JK, about the waiting nonsense. Uh, too soon? No, we'll do, that. we'll do that topic at some point. Sad story. Also very interesting. Young baby George weighed nine pounds and lived to projectile vomit, according to his mom, for the first four weeks of his life. After he figured out how to keep food down, his parents brought him back to the apartment on 155th Street, which had expensive new furniture, a sunken living room, and a dramatic view of the Hudson River. A maid, Amanda, would serve as George's protector from both his parents, from his father's drunken rages and his mom's cutting remarks that often egged on the fights, after escalating fights that led to her truly worrying about the physical safety of herself and her kids, especially Patrick, uh, Mary decided that she was leaving Patrick Sr., you know, once and for all. And while, he, and while he was trying to knock down his own door in a rage, she took her kids, fled out the window, down the fire escape after calling her brother Tom, who drove over, was waiting to pick him up at the bottom by the time they made it down, went to go live with her father, Dennis Beery, ex-police officer who lived at the corner of 111th Street in Amsterdam, spent his free time copying out Shakespeare, by hand for fun, interesting family. Uh, three days after they arrived there, Mary, George, and Patrick Jr., now brother Tom, drove the family to South Fallsburg in the Catskills to stay with friends and hide from Patrick Sr. They lived there for two months, beginning when George was just eight weeks old. Dennis Beery would die of a stroke during that time, and George would always wish he'd been able to get to know his grandfather better. After her father died, Mary continued to live from place to place, hiding uh, from Patrick Sr., from what uh, one source said was about two years. Court awarded a legal separation of Mary and Patrick before those two years, December of 1937. Mary would have, uh, she would have filed for divorce, but according to George, the Catholic Church made that very difficult for anyone wanting to remain Catholic to get. Even if they lived in fear of their life, you know, uh, for lives by, uh, from their estranged partner. Catholic Church has continued to take a beating in these past several episodes. Uh, Patrick fought the proceedings saying that he was a loving father, a good husband. But when Mary's sister, Lil, brought young Patrick into the courtroom. The judge watched as the kid, six years old, cringed away from his father like a whipped puppy. Mary would be awarded $35 a week in child support, child support that Patrick would never pay. Last time Patrick ever saw George was when George was just a few months old. He sang the Rose of Trolley and played with George on the living room floor shortly before his mom's escape. George would later be uh, read a telegram for his father on his first birthday, May of 1938. Mary and Patrick had been separated for a uh, 
about 10 months at that point. He wrote to her saying, just to let you know that one year ago today, I shared every moment of your anguish and prayed that I might share each pain while your present advisor said nothing and cared less. Thank God and you for the sunbeam you brought forth, whom I pray will outlive all the ill-founded gossip. George would later say he was touched that his dad at least called him a sunbeam. Sadly, as far as I know, Patrick would never try and communicate George again. By 1940 or 1941, Patrick was working as a kitchen assistant at the monastery of the Graymore Friars in Garrison, New York. What the hell happened to his speaking engagements? His kick-ass business career? Why is Ever Ready now working in a monastery's kitchen? Who is he offering his hard dick to with some tongs now? The monks? Well, if he did, he probably had several takers. But no one knows for sure. George would speculate that his dad's alcoholism caught up with him, making Patrick unable to work in advertising. In a letter to a daughter from his first marriage, Patrick would say, My new job is assistant to Brother Capistran, who is in charge of the cafeteria. On Sunday, I attend the steam table, dishing out food. During the week, I have charge of the men who mop, clean up, and get the place ready for the following Sunday. I have a private bedroom, and I eat with five privileged characters in a small dining room. The same food as the priests and brothers. I've lost 30 pounds, mostly around the waist. I feel swell. Not a drink in over six weeks, and there is plenty available. Oh, yes. Despite the cheery tone of this message, all not well for Patrick. He would regularly earn a small fortune as an ad man, public speaker, now doing menial labor for pennies. This was also the time that the U.S. was getting involved in World War II after the December 7th attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor. George would later remember rolling blackouts in Manhattan, done so that enemy aircraft wouldn't be able to recognize and bomb the city, and how the naval officers who trained at Columbia marched and sang wartime songs in his neighborhood. He'd march alongside them, sometimes later finding out that, uh, or some, he'd march alongside them sometimes, later finding out, there we go, uh, that one of the men he'd march alongside was a young midshipman named Johnny Carson. He would go on to be a guest of Carson's when he was hosting the Tonight Show dozens and dozens of times. How very cool. By the fall of 1943, Patrick was working in Watertown, New York at the radio station WATN, selling commercial time, playing records on the air, similar similar to what his son would later do. Same thing his son would uh, be doing about 30 years later. Patrick's radio station sign-off would even be similar to George's later jokes when he said, I pledge allegiance to the people of the United States of America and all the political crap for which they stand. Big dough shall be divisible with union dues for all. George would later think, he wouldn't learn of this sign-off until many years later after his dad had passed and he was already a comic, that he'd somehow inherited his father's sense for the bullshit that is the glue of America and call it the greatest gift his dad could have given him. Just two years later, before ever reunited with his sons, Patrick dies in December of 1945 at the age of 57 of a heart attack. George was just eight. By that time, he was living with his mom and brother in a house on West 121st Street, a neighborhood known as Morningside Heights. The Carlins were living in one of the biggest racial, cultural, and socioeconomic melting pots in New York, a city that itself one of the biggest melting pots in the world. George would grow up influenced by many of the city's nearby premier cultural and educational institutions like Columbia University, just a few blocks away, as was Bernard University, the Union Theological Seminary, Riverside Church also nearby. Young George could step out his front door, look down the street, see a 28-story Gothic cathedral, the Jewish Theological Seminary, the Juilliard School of Music, also nearby. Just to the north, several neighborhoods that Mary urged her sons, pleaded with them to stay out of. Lower class areas where recent Irish and other immigrants lived. I'm sure they had family there. You know, Carl himself, Irish, both mom and dad were. And his uh, mom wanted to keep her boys away from, uh, you know, the, their, their family's roots in an area with reputations for lawlessness and drunkenness. Carlin would call that area White Harlem. Tougher, more crowded than the streets around Columbia, full of old buildings with no elevators, populated by working class families. 
Before he'd explore the streets of White Harlem, he'd spend many days listening to the old Philco radio in the living room. He'd listen to quiz shows, soap operas, newscasts, interviews, plays, comedy. This was back when radio was the shit. Whatever he could get his ears on. He would have loved, I think, the cult of the curious. Or at least a concept. Who knows as far as the execution. Uh, Carlin valued curiosity very much. Remained intellectually curious his entire life. Before he entered school himself, well, his older brother Patrick was away at boarding school. The Mount St. Michael School run by the Maris Brothers. George's company became the radio. All the different accents, opinions, perspectives came through it. In the years that followed, Mary would try as hard as she could to give her sons the upwardly mobile life she wanted for herself, the one she had a brief taste of when she was married to Patrick. She desperately didn't want to be seen in terms of the many negative stereotypes associated with the Irish in New York at that time. Lazy, drunk, rowdy. So she dressed her kids in the clothes that fashionable, rich, upper middle-class kids, you know, and their parents wore, had their hair cut at the fashionable salons, even when money was tight. Now raising her boys, you know, Ben raising her boys on her own, working in the city as an executive secretary. She would never remarry. George and Patrick didn't want what she wanted. They wanted to play in the streets with their friends, get into fights, be the rowdy young boys that they felt that they, you know, were at their cores. And his autobiography, George would put it this way. Mary wanted two little Lord Fauntleroys. What she got was a pair of hardened dog turds. <laughs> I love that description. So silly and yet paints such a clear picture of who those two little rat finks were as kids. Uh, soon Mary's attention would be focused on making George into the type of well-mannered boy she wanted. Early in his childhood, she seemed to have uh, uh, kind of given up on hoping that Patrick, the older son, would turn into who she wanted him to be. Uh, Mary thought that Patrick Jr. was a, was a Carlin with a rough sense of humor and penchant for getting into trouble of his father and his father's kin, while George was a, was a Barry, cultured and refined. Barry was her maiden name, right? Her own parents, Irish immigrants, not, uh, just not rowdy, hard-drinking ones. She told both her boys that everything they did was a reflection of her. She would guilt them into behaving the way she wanted. What? Guilt tripping, mom? I've never heard of such a thing. Why is that such a common archetype? Mother, why do you live to suppress my desires? Uh, from a young age, George was determined not to live by his mom's rules, but by his own. If you're a new listener, that was a very old reference, by the way. If you're like, what the fuck just happened? Uh, at the same time, though, he, uh, he liked making her laugh, liked making mom laugh. And uh, it is eerie in some ways, how similar our childhoods were. Uh, when I was young, uh, I didn't see my dad much for, for quite a while and lived with my mom, sometimes also with her grandparents, but always with mom as well. And she was for sure back then a big guilt tripper and for sure tried to push me into being like prim and proper and, you know, do this kind of career, that kind of career. And I had no interest in doing what she wanted me to do, but also really wanted to make her laugh. I think that's where my comedy began. Carlin, to his, uh, to his mom's chagrin, got in a lot of trouble in school. He went to Corpus Christi uh, run by the Dominican nuns who all knew his mom because the family went to the Corpus Christi church on Sundays. There, as Carlin would later describe, he was a consummate show-off, class clown, spent more time staring out the window, cracking jokes than he did studying. He made weird faces, fart sounds, belched, imitated his teachers, blew bubbles with a spit. <laughs> School was where this future comic legend would get his first taste of entertaining. His first ever public performance would be playing uh, Frère Jacques on the xylophone with some wooden mallets for his class in early grade school. He found their attention stimulating and loved the applause. I love that Carlin's very first performance, what he considered his first performance, was playing this. <laughs> the super edgy comic started off so innocent and wholesome. Like we all did. Uh, at his mom's office, little George often did impressions of Mae West. He would do a dance called the Big Apple to show off for her coworkers. 
Uh, he'd do an impression of Johnny, the Philip Morris cigarette mascot, which he'd made up on his own. It was a big hit with her friends, I guess. Uh, second grade, he became a featured soloist in his class's band, playing March of the Little Lead Soldiers, performing at the Horace Mann School across 121st Street. Little Carlin playing this. All eyes on him. <laughs> Again, so wholesome. Made, make Mama proud. Uh, around fifth grade, he began to feel that he might have some kind of future as a performer. In an assignment, he wrote that he'd like to be an actor, impersonator, comedian, disc jockey, announcer. <laughs> I love this last one. Or trumpet player. That is such a little kid thing to write. Uh, he certainly, <laughs> certainly dressed the part of uh, an entertainer around seventh grade, which would be around 1950, still attending the Catholic school. He wore electric blue peg pants with gray pistol pockets, two-inch rise, gray belt loops, saddle sticking with a 14-inch peg and exaggerated knees. With that, he wore an orange leopard skin shirt. Uh, people who saw him wondered if he got a job at a movie theater or something. Eighth grade, Corpus Christi expelled George, then took him back, spelled him for bad behavior in class, took him back, supposedly because they wanted him to write the school play. For his eighth grade graduation, his mom gave him a tape recorder and he began to use it to record his uh, imitations to people in the neighborhood. Already working on the voices that would later give his stand-up back so much uh, theatrical life. Uh, he also rebelled against the religious instruction he received. Years later, he talked about how he was told by the nuns that once he took Jesus into his heart, he'd feel a powerful change. He would be transformed in God's grace, God's living embrace, and feel the, the power of the Holy Spirit. But when he tried to do that, he didn't feel shit. He felt ripped off and tricked. He began to think that the Catholic faith was a sham, that the adults and authority figures around him had been lying to him about God. And if they'd lied to him about God, what else had they been lying to him about? While George grew disillusioned with his mom's faith, he did greatly enjoy exploring the city around him, becoming a frequent guest at the libraries, lounges, dorms, gyms, halls uh, that populated his neighborhood. With his friends, he played games like Chinese and American handball, boxball, ring a levio, blacksmith, Johnny Wright, a pony, kick the can, roller hockey, I don't know half of that shit is. Uh, the group of young boys he ran with explored Morningside Park, Central Park, Riverside Park, all the fucking parks, swam in the Hudson. George rode his little bike around, all around the city streets, weaving through pedestrians and fast-moving vehicles. Most of his friends causing trouble, stealing shit. Uh, most of his friends were sons of working-class uh, working Irish, uh, ready to use their fists when they, uh, you know, uh, had to against anyone who interfered with them, like a Columbia student whose cars the boys stole from as they got older. George would later say he was not much of a fighter, but he did get dragged into a number of scrapes with a crew of kids that the uh, neighborhood cops would become pretty familiar with. Uh, George would also take the subway around the city to get autographs, sneak into movies, browse department stores, walk alongside the observation decks of the RCA, uh, Empire State Building, steal stuff from novelty stores, climb trees, do people watching, you know, little uh, little punk kid shit. Uh, still, Mary was focused on making George trying to into a respectable, cultured, rule-following citizen. Wasn't going well. She wanted him to go to Regis, a prestigious high school, but like his brother had done before him, he rejected that. Mary did get George a job at a popular New York men's clothing store called Rogers Pete, hoping that would refine him. The chain died out in the 80s, but was a New York institution for decades before that. Uh, he didn't last long there. George got fired for stealing money out of, a, uh, out of men's unattended wallets when they were trying on suits. Naughty George. He'd go on briefly to attend an all-boys uh, Catholic high school in the Bronx called Cardinal Hayes High School, but got expelled after only three semesters at the age of 15 in 1952. Unlike Regis Philbin, Martin Scorsese, bunch of other notable Cardinal Hayes alums, including numerous basketball players who made it into the NBA, Carlin would not graduate. 
On a later interview with Playboy, Carlin admitted that he was failing numerous subjects, running away from home for days at a time when he got expelled from Hayes. Also got caught stealing money from the visiting team's locker room during a basketball game. Also got caught uh, telling kids on the playground that he uh, found some heroin. (laughs) Uh, He just had no interest in the time and what they were actually trying to teach him. He said he didn't have much interest in what anyone was trying to teach him at that time. He had a real problem with authority figures in general, didn't trust him. That attitude would uh, not serve him well in school, but many years later, it would help turn him into a comedy legend. Over three decades later, 1983, Carlin would perform at a Hayes School fundraiser in honor of Monsignor Stanislaus P. Jablonski, the very man who had thrown him out. Despite the fears of some of the Alumni Association, Carlin kept his act clean. Jablonski enjoyed the tribute. Jablonski said at one point, uh, he, he, or uh, Jablonski at one point read old detention slips. He personally had issued Carlin <laughs> and one read, he thinks he's a comedian. Ah, that's fucking great. Uh, but back in his adolescent years, uh, it was now uh, on to another all boys Catholic high school. After he got kicked out of the first, he goes to Bishop Dubois High School in Harlem, gets kicked out of that one, goes to his third and final Catholic high school, uh, Salesian High School up north of the city in Goshen. Wouldn't last long uh, in that place either. Drops out of high school altogether, August 1954. Joins the Air Force. Wants to use the GI Bill to cover the cost of school he does want to go to at some point. Broadcasting school. Since he's only 17, his mom has to sign him in. Uh, he now has a life plan he'll hold on to for many, many years, right? First become a disc jockey someplace. Use the audience that he had access to in that uh, market to build up a following. Then use that following to perform in local nightclubs. Become a comedian. Get good enough to, to be able to travel, perform in other places, build a following in, co- in clubs around the country. Eventually make it back to the Big Apple, where he'd become a star in a Broadway production. Hollywood producers, showbiz, would hear about this hot new actor and would cast him in some movies where he would go and become the next Danny Kay, his acting hero, when he grew up. Danny Kay was a very popular comedic actor in the 40s and 50s. He could sing, do impersonations, use facial expressions, overall physicality to a great comedic effect for the time. Carlin would later also really use his body and facial expressions uh, in addition to his words, you know, to make his bits bigger. Young George now had big footsteps to follow, big dreams. First, he would have to serve in the military. He'd first get on a bus to head to the Samson Air Force Base near Rochester, New York. Basic training was grueling and George got sick uh, on purpose, actually. He volunteered for an experiment that tracked a cold virus moving through the barracks, a uh, cold virus that the scientists planted there. Hope he got something decent in return for that. Uh, George did not enjoy his initial time in the military. Still hated authority figures. Now he's surrounded by him. He only enlisted to get right broadcasting school paid for. Uh, definitely never intended to become a career military man. Without a high school diploma, he knew he was never going to become an officer or a pilot. He tried to just get through it. Uh, enduring long lectures about shit he did not care about. Like how to behave in uniform as well as military history. He did enjoy some of the company he kept. Uh, especially uh, his time with black servicemen. Some of them came from uh, near George's neighborhood back in Manhattan. Many others came from the south side of Chicago. And George felt he had more in common with them, love of jazz, R&B, sports, than with many of the white kids he'd enlisted with. Together, uh, he and his new friends smoked pot, goofed around, committed petty thefts. Uh, Also got along well with his first commander, a guy named Don. Give George special commands to uh, go take records from the base exchange. Don would let George hang out in his room after the other guys had lights out. They'd listen to records George had taken, maybe stolen. Uh, Before too long, George would be moved to Denver, where he learned the navigation system using the new B-47 Stratajet. Suddenly, rather than slacking off uh, like he had in school, he uh, he loved this new assignment. He liked the data flow, the technology, the problem solving. But it still wasn't something he was going to do for long. Still didn't like being ordered around either. Uh, George would turn 18 in in May of 1955, spent nine months in the service so far. 
now sent to the Barksdale Air Force Base across the Red River from Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, here he started hanging out at the base's NCO club. Since this was the deep south in the 50s, still segregated, there was an annex in the club for black NCOs, and that was where George hung out. Listen to the jukebox, drink malt liquor with his new buddies. One day, George even spent a night in jail for being in a car with some of his black friends, uh, one of whom was driving. The cops pulled him over, sub- uh, subjected them to harassment, put him in jail. Once in jail, I fucking love this. George pulled out three joints he'd hid in his pocket. And they spent the night passing them back and forth, the white between the white cell and the black cell, having a good old time. I bet young me would have loved to hang out with young George. Uh, soon, George found himself in more trouble, mouthed off to an air police officer who wanted to see some identification. Said, fuck you, I'm going to work. <laughs> Sounds about right, on brand. He had defied authority, big no-no in the military. He got something called an Article 15, punishment just short of a court-martial. They docked his pay, his rank, forced him to give up the stripe he'd recently earned. Then, not long after that, he was court-martialed for deserting his post in a unit-simulated combat mission, when during the exercise, he took a nap, <laughs> placed his gun next to a power unit. Once again, his pay was cut. He was demoted. Now he'd uh, gotten one stripe, lost it. Then he got a stripe back. Then he got two more stripes. Then he lost a stripe. Then lost another stripe. In total, by the time his brief career in the military was over, he'd earned six stripes and lost four. And George did not give a single fuck uh, he was already thinking beyond the military. A friend would tell him about a play taking place in a, in a theater in Shreveport called Venture Theater, where George would audition, get a small part. One of the main actors was Joe Monroe, morning disc jockey on KJO, most popular station in Shreveport. George was fucking pumped. Still holding on to that plan of his. Disc jockey, comic, big time actor. Now he'd met a man who could help him. He asked Joe if he could come down and watch the show someday, and Joe did him one better, hired him for 60 cents an hour to do the weekend newscast. Hot damn it! <laughs> He's in. Soon George will be doing a uh, one-hour show from noon to one before expanding from noon to three. Preferring not to have George around and making trouble on base, his superiors gave him an off-base permit, only required him to write up a couple reports a week before he could leave for the station. Then pretty soon, he'd have nothing but non-military time because he'd get another court-martial. <laughs> My God, this time he got it while stationed in England. He's only there for about 90 days while listening to the radio on a play by or listen to like a play by play on the radio of a Brooklyn Dodgers baseball game is their final season in Brooklyn. Actually, George is uh, drunk and he, he gets belligerent uh, superior, you know, <laughs> asks him to quiet down and he tells him to go fuck himself again. That's on brand. And again, big no, no. Uh, now he has two court marshals, five article 15s. I skipped over a few of the other infractions on his air force record. He doesn't want to be there anymore and they don't want him around anymore either. So George is given a general discharge from the air force, July 29th, 1957. Despite getting kicked out, uh, he had served for three years and a month and uh, still qualified for the GI Bill at that time. George was uh, not down about the discharge. He felt like he's on top of the world. He's 20 years old, already had a year and a half experience in radio. Back from England, he's able to work again as a DJ at KJO in Shreveport uh, for a few more months. And then when one of the guys from KJO moves up to Boston for a better radio gig, George follows. The new station, George uh, follows this guy too. Uh, Weeze, W-E-Z-E, will be very different. They still cared about, uh, they still carried, excuse me, soap operas and quiz shows. They weren't, uh, they weren't very hip or cool. Uh, George was able to get more experience though. He took a job as a board announcer, doing live copy, running the board. Also able to program a few hours of music late at night. Maybe not the kind of music he loves, but still cool to people at the time. Uh, still cool to people now. He played Sinatra, Vic Damone, uh, New Orleans, uh, Louis Prima, that kind of shit. Th- this, this kind of stuff. They tell me how much you care. 
Damone singing live, getting ladies wet, getting panties dripping in 1983. Sinatra said he had one of the, uh, had the best set of pipes, excuse me, in the business for that style of, of song. Uh, Wheeze wasn't Carlin's dream gig, but it would bring a very important person into his life. In 1959, he met Jack Burns, uh, newsman at the station, and they hit it off immediately. They both like to play the mandolin and jerk off elderly strangers in Turkish spots. Fuck yeah, bro. Noise. Or maybe not that. Maybe they both like doing impressions of working class Irish characters. Yeah. Yeah, probably that one. Uh, both of them felt like they could have their characters say things that they never uh, felt comfortable saying in real life. Uh, once again, in Boston, Naughty George would get into trouble, though. 1959, Cardinal Cushing was a big fucking deal in the Catholic Church, especially in Boston. Cardinal Richard Cushing. Cushing. Why did I say Cushing? Cushing. Richard Cushing. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, we've, uh, we've met our dick quota for the day. Can't have time suck without some dick. Nimrod Demands dick in every suck, I figured out. He makes me suck at least one dick each week right here in the studio. Gosh dang. Uh, Cardinal Cushing, the Archbishop of the Boston Archdiocese from 1944 to 1970, said the rosary on air from a remote phone line every evening at that time. Good, good. Sure, uh, that's exactly what a lot of people needed to, uh, they'd, be, they'd be burning in hell if you wouldn't have done that. Uh, before he began the rosary, he would always say a little something about life in the Boston Archdiocese. And yes, this fucking archbishop, this dick, of course, absolutely. New priests were molesting kids on his watch and absolutely hid them, moved them to other parishes instead of reporting them. Link to the source for that info in this episode. Show notes, of course. Show notes available uh, for download via the Timesuck app or at timesuckpodcast.com. I was hoping he was clean, but figured there was some disturbing evidence out there considering where he served and for how long. Anyway, one evening while Carlin is working the station, Cushing starts in uh, about the little sisters of the poor, saying, the little sisters of the poor have been working selflessly for years in the Boston wards. Well, children with chronic diseases, uh, he keeps droning on and on. He runs past his time when he's supposed to be off. So, uh, you know, Alka-Seltzer had a sponsored news broadcast that was supposed to be running. George faced with a dilemma now, right? Should he uh, allow the extremely popular, beloved pedo hider, keep yammering away or cut to commercial and please the sponsor. George decided to uh, cut him off, take him off air, go to the Alka-Seltzer commercial uh, newscast. And immediately the studio was inundated with calls asking who had dared to shut down the voice of God. Station backed Carlin's decision though, but it did leave a black mark on his record. And then they would not back him up after this next uh, faux pas. This one's pretty bad. (laughs) Sometimes on weekends, uh, when George wanted to buy some pot, he would take the station's mobile news unit and they would drive the van to New York City. Six or seven other guys would pile in with him. And one time, this trip caused George to miss covering a huge story about a prison break at Walpole State Prison. <laughs> when his superior calls George and chooses ass, he tells him to calm down. He'll cover the next prison break. <laughs> his boss, as you can imagine, not happy, didn't appreciate that sentiment, and he's fired immediately. After being fired still in 1959, George heads down to Texas now. Take a job at KXOL, the number one station in Fort Worth that time, which gave him a seven to midnight segment doing top 40 hits. Station managers called it the homework shift because kids would listen to it while they did their homework. And he holds that spot down for quite a while. After about six months at KXOL, he, uh, his old Shreveport buddy, Jack Burns, who he kept in touch with, appears in the scene again, having quit wheeze. Uh, maybe it's W-E-Z-E. I don't know if anybody calls it wheeze. I like to call it wheeze. Uh, Jack tells him that, uh, 
He's on his way to Hollywood, but needs to make some money first. And George hooks him up with a job as a newsman. Jack also moves in with him, and now the roommates can joke around all the time, develop some real comedic chemistry while living together. Uh, Jack opens up Carlin's mind to uh, some new political insights. George's family had all been staunch Republicans, supporters of Eisenhower. Mary had been pro-Joseph McCarthy during the uh, House Un-American Activities hearings, and young George, despite some rebellious ways, simply still assumed that his mom was right. His conservative tendencies even bled into his radio job. Once on air, he issued a call for the preemptive bombing of Red China. But then Jack would give George a new perspective, talking to him about Castro and Cuba. Jack had actually interviewed Castro when he came to Boston, one of the first English language interviews that Castro gave in the U.S. Not a big fan of Castro, but okay. Uh, Jack I told George that it was fine to care about corporations in the state, but also should care about people and their civil liberties. And Jack is a fucking idiot. <laughs> okay, Jack. Okay, hippie Jack. Only corporations matter. CEOs, upper executives, obviously should live in gated communities, hoard giant piles of wealth, while everyone beneath them lives in fear that if they break the wrong bone or come down with the wrong illness, they will quickly go bankrupt, never be able to retire, possibly end up being one of the tens of thousands of homeless working Americans right now. Fuck them, right? <laughs> come on. Uh, no, obviously, at least I hope this is obvious. Both corporations and individuals matter. Jack was right, and George saw that. Uh, influenced by Jack... And he was heading this direction anyway. George was now quickly on his way to becoming a beatnik. Defined as a dirty, fucking, stinky, commie, filth hippie. Or as a person who participated in a social movement of the 1950s and early 60s which stressed artistic self-expression and the rejection of the mores of conventional society. A rebel dotty, anti-establishment. Uh, George and Jack would spend time at a coffee house in Fort Worth called Cellar on Houston Street. They served alcohol. Illegally. woo Since the county was still dry. And yes, the county was dry. No legal liquor sales or consumption in 1959, 26 years after the national repeal of prohibition. 1996, Texas still had 53 dry counties out of 254 total counties. They got a lot of counties. Uh, and a lot of them are fucking bananas. Don't mess with Texas. She, uh, she'd be a bit cray cray. Uh, there are still today six dry counties in 2022 in the land of the free. While the rest of the country is arguing over legalizing weed, maybe decriminalizing other drugs like, you know, psychedelic mushrooms, there are people in six counties in Texas who would just like to be able to legally buy a fucking beer. Uh, one night on an open mic stage, this beaten at coffee house, the end of 1959, Jack and George start doing the bits they'd done around the house, riffing in characters' voices. A surprise to hear they're getting a lot of laughs. George is hooked to continue performing at this venue. Unlike on the radio, they could uh, really experiment in front of a live audience, find out what played well in the moment, what didn't, how to phrase the kind of things they wouldn't say in polite society so they'd get a good response. The duo began to dream about someday getting on the Jack Parr show. And soon enough, in February of 1960, the two decide to leave Fort Worth for Hollywood. Showbiz! They bought a Dodge Dart with tinted windows. Oh, hell yeah. Headed west on Highway 80 towards El Paso. And how adorable is this? Their colleagues at the radio station talked to them over the air until they were out of the signal's range, saying stuff like, they're on their way, on their way to Hollywood, they're going to be big stars. Uh, once in Hollywood, George and Jack checked into the YMCA and bought some new suits at Sears, naturally. When you want to look and feel your best, you shop at Sears. Within a few weeks, they got robbed, their money uh, stashed, stolen, time to get jobs, cruel introduction to the land of showbiz, Someone stole their super cool Sears fashion suits. First place they went was a daytime station called K-Day looking for work, where luckily they got a gig right off the bat for a morning comedy routine. Station called them the Wright Brothers. 
and they would do their first show from an airplane with, or, you know, what looked like an airplane, uh, with aviator helmets on. <laughs> oh, oh man, how wacky. Uh, sounds like it was corny as shit. Guessing it was the bright idea of some dipshit producer and that Jack and George hated it. Oh, I don't know. It was a very different time. Uh, they'd stay at the station after hours, work on nightclub bits. One night, a man came in. Uh, they started, you know, gotten some local little coffee house spots. And then a man came in named Murray Becker, offers to manage them, introduces them to the technical sides of showbiz, like having a contract. Murray contacted a guy at Era Records, too, set up a recording for which Jack and George would get a $300 advance. Murray would also introduce them to Lenny motherfucking Bruce, George's icon, as you know. George had come across uh, his album, Interviews of Our Times, when he was in Shreveport, and the defiance of Lenny's material really spoke to him. One thing to be a performer, but another thing to be the kind of freewheeling performer that Lenny Bruce was. Lenny checked out the nightclub act that Carlin and Burns were working on in L.A. coffee houses and loved it. What a cool experience for young George. He's 22 now. A couple days later, Jack and George get a telegram from Jack, from Jack Sobel, head of general artist, one of the biggest agencies at the time. And the telegram read, based on Lenny Bruce's rave reaction, the New York office hereby authorizes West Coast office GAC to sign Burns and Carlin under exclusive representation contract, all fields, Jack Sobel. Wish there was a magical video uh, of the two of them reacting to that telegram. It was June of 1960. The two young comics had been in LA for just a mere five months. Already had an album recorded, manager, big agency. The album, while recorded in May of 1960, wouldn't be released until 1963, uh, called Burns and Carlin at the Playboy Club Tonight. Uh, Here's a little snippet from the vinyl pressing uh, of that. A 22-year-old Carlin playing a, a boxer in a sketch called Killer Carlin. Good evening, sport fans. Biff Burns back again in the Sportlight Spotlight. And my guest tonight, a young man who has been a credit to the boxing game for over 20 years. A young man who was recently called by Ring Magazine, one of America's boxers. I'd like to introduce him to you now, ladies and gentlemen, Killer Carlin. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Biff. It's a pleasure to be on your crummy show. Thank you, Killer. Listen, uh, could you tell me, Killer, how your fabulous boxing career started? Well, I started boxing as a kid in uh, my neighborhood, in the Lower East Side in New York. One day I was sitting at home, my mother asked me to take the garbage out. So I punched her in the mouth. (laughs) My old man seen it. He says, kid, you got a good right hand. How would you like to make a little money in a fight game? So I made my decision. I called Mitch Miller and I canceled my oboe lessons. Then- uh, what's funny to me about this little trivia here is that uh, this record was not actually recorded at the Playboy Club. It was recorded at a tiny little club in Hollywood called Cosmo Alley. But the record label thought Playboy Club sounded cooler. So said they recorded it there. And I bet that annoyed the fuck out of Carlin later. Now, I love, you know, early on, you, you can hear, you can hear like little bits of what he would become later. Uh, I have more stuff of his early performances. Uh, I will not have recordings of his later performances, I think just because of uh, copyright issues. Uh, shortly after this performance, Burns and Carlin were booked into their first legitimate nightclub, the Cloister Inn in Chicago, opening for Bobby Short, cabaret singer and penis. Uh, they're returning to Playboy now, Hugh Hefner. Uh, they're actually doing something to Playboy now. He sees him, takes notice of them, thinking they have similar ideologies, you know, sexual freedom, freedom of speech, that sort of thing. Possibly with the help of a good word from Hef back when his name carried some weight in certain circles. The duo now get on to the Tonight, uh, Tonight starring Jack Parr, you know, like early uh, Tonight Show predecessor, like like uh, before it was called the Tonight Show. And they imitated Kennedy and Nixon debating. So, uh, yeah, early Tonight Show appearance. The two guys were a hit, working blend of their working class uh, backgrounds and their new suits and social standings. Audience loved them. 
They weren't clean cut, but they didn't look like punks either. They were political, but had more interest in playing their Irish characters and making statements. You know, they put their comedy first, not their politics. Uh, felt Still felt safe, but maybe a little bit, tiny bit counterculture. Uh, they'd done this Kennedy-Nixon routine back in Chicago where Hefner had seen them. And Joe Kennedy, JFK's dad, had actually been in the audience. And he didn't care for it. As uh, Hugh and Carlin would later talk about when Carlin appeared on Hefner's short-lived TV variety show, Playboy After Dark. Uh, for the next two years, Jack and George would play first-line nightclubs like the Embers in Indianapolis, Freddy's in Minneapolis, and the Tidelands in Houston. Some places they did great, other places they bombed. Uh, did well enough in most to keep getting work, they kept going. During this touring, still in 1960, at the Racket Club in Dayton, Ohio, George meets his future wife, love of his life, Brenda Hosbrook. Brenda was born in Dayton in 1939. Older of two sisters, spent her childhood in salon or saloons where dad where her dad sang for fun. After graduating high school, she planned on going to college, even got a scholarship, but then her mom forbid it because she said women only went to college if they wanted to become teachers. Oh boy. 62 years ago, and that was practical advice many parents gave their daughters. Don't go to college unless you want to do a job that's okay for ladies, like working with children. Breeding children and or working with children. That's your options. You walking fucking wombs. You breed mares. Fucking scary how stupid our species is in so many ways. I still often think this. I am fascinated with how well society actually functions. All the beautiful buildings, amazing tech, medicine, lots of infrastructure, etc. Despite how many really stupid fucking ideas so many of us have and have had in the past. It is incredible to me that we are not living amongst burning piles of shit. Uh, Brenda caved into her mom's pressure. Hard to go to school when your parents are, uh, you know, supposed to help pay for it, but uh, won't support your dreams. She wanted to be a journalist, but ladies don't be journalists. Uh, now she says, fuck it. Ends up getting pregnant with her high school boyfriend. And then uh, uh, Brenda's uh, peach of a mom interferes once more and pressures the couple to get married. Two weeks after the wedding, Brenda has a miscarriage, uh, then files for a divorce, which causes her awesome parents to basically disown her for a time. Sounds like she was better off without those two sad fucking clowns. You can't pick your parents, meet sex. Uh, and idiots and assholes have kids all the time. But a lot of folks would be happier if they just told mom and pa to go suck a bag of dicks. If they can't be cool and supportive and just uh, cut them out of their lives. I cut out a terrible person, a uh, parent who happened to be a stepmom to me for over 10 years out of my life uh, completely. Told her to fuck off, never spoke to her again. She died a decade or so after I said adios and I have not once regretted it. If anything, I regret not doing it to that toxic snake uh, of a human earlier. Following this, Brenda got a job as an executive secretary at a tool company, but then quit after she was required to organize call girls for visiting salesmen, with the implication being that she would be required to join in. Holy shit. What a, what a fun time to be a woman in the American Midwest. Lucifina wants to find those guys and shit in their mouths, but only if that doesn't turn them on. After that, she became the maitre d' at the racket club a nightclub that featured comics, cabaret acts. Uh, she actually would meet Lenny Bruce there. And Lenny would be the one to recommend George and Jack to perform at the Racket Club in August of 1960. Uh, that is fascinating to me. Uh, we would never have had the comedy stylings of George Carlin had Lenny Bruce not opened the door to the type of comedy he did and helped his comedy career. And Carlin would not have met his wife had Bruce not recommended him to perform at that particular club. George and Brenda clicked immediately. She said when he met her, he asked, uh, uh, you know, what is a guy supposed to do in Dayton during some time off? Wink, wink. She told him uh, he should find a girl with a good stereo to hang out with. And that girl was her. And then for the next two weeks, they spent every night together. Brenda said she uh, didn't think they ever even turned that stereo on. They were too busy doing other things. She tossed a little impish grin in when she said that. 
I love Brenda. After two weeks, the gig ended and it was time for George to leave town. Brenda assumed their little affair might be over now. George did not. He was in love. And I love their love story. George was now caught between his burgeoning career and pursuing something with Brenda. Uh, George went on the road again, but couldn't get Brenda off his mind. He uh, wrote her letters, called her up a couple months later, asked her to come to Chicago for New Year's Eve. She couldn't. So instead, he just drove to Dayton. After a couple days delay, he made it to Dayton in early January of 1961. She wasn't positive he was really going to show up. According to George's autobiography, he says, I go in the door and she's seating people, giving the menus, taking orders and so on. When suddenly she turns around and sees me in the doorway. She drops the menus, runs the entire length of the dining room, jumps into my arms. We go to a motel and no one sees us for three days. During those three days, he asked her to marry him. She said, yes. And I heard that someone may have teared up first hearing about their love story. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. I'm a man. And I do not express emotion other than anger and frustration and sometimes tacit subdued joy. But I heard that a guy who looks like me was very touched by all this. Some fucking baby man. That is not me. Anyway, George uh, met Brenda's family. Got her mom's begrudging approval to marry him. Sucks that she felt the need to even ask that old crusty bitch. And then the two of them went to New York where George introduced her to her, uh, his mother, brother, and old gang of friends. Brenda and George then take a short break from fucking like Spanish fly guzzling rabbits and get married on June 3rd, 1961. Ceremony takes place in Dayton at her, at her family's house. Mary flew in from New York. Jack was uh, George's best man. And uh, their manager... Murray Becker was among the guests and then it was back on the road for George and Jack. But this time Brenda was along for the ride too. down in Dallas. George gets into uh, more trouble with law. This time really isn't his fault. Uh, when he's at a laundromat, two men in civil. And actually I, I say more trouble with the law. Well, I guess more since he was a kid. This is his first trouble with the law uh, since the, uh, since the military. And this time, not really his fault. When he's at a laundromat, two men in civilian clothes handcuff him, bring him back to the motel where he, Jack, and Brenda were staying, then proceed to tear the hotel room apart and interrogate all of them. Uh, they told George uh, that Jack had ratted him out. They told Jack the opposite, both Jack and George, very confused. Eventually, they find out that the cops were following a tip-off about a group of armed robbers who'd hit the Chicago Motor Club, two men and a woman, and their group happened to fit the bill. Uh, that night, George and Jack get to the club just in time to open. Also around that time, George starting to think it might be time for him to move on from their two-man show. Both Jack and George seemed to know that being a, a duo was a stepping stone for them. They were too much alike in their performance styles. Same kind of guy, same kind of characters. And, you know, George wanted to uh, work solo. March 1962, the duo of Burns and Carlin officially breaks up after grabbing a drink at the Redfields Neighborhood Tavern in Dallas. And it was pretty dramatic. George told Jack, basically, thanks for all the great times. Uh, I think we should go our separate ways. He thought Jack was on the same page with that plan. They discussed it previously. Uh, no, Jack pulled a gun on him. George quickly grabbed his arm. They wrestle around. They wrestle all the way towards the street where a presidential motorcade was driving by. The gun goes off. People start screaming. Someone at the same time, maybe the same bullet hits JFK. Crazy that hasn't come up in assassination theories. Okay, maybe that uh, wasn't that dramatic. Maybe JFK would be assassinated the following year. No, they broke up at the Maryland Hotel in Chicago. It was amicable. George, or excuse me, Jack wanted to pursue sketch comedy and George wanted to pursue stand-ups. There you go. Uh, Jack joined the Compass Players in St. Louis, later moved to Second City. Chicago uh, would later end up as a hugely successful TV writer and producer. Uh, he and George would remain close friends uh, for, you know, for the rest of their lives. Now without his partner, 24-year-old George had to figure out how to, uh, an entirely new routine. Toured the country yet again, this time bombing frequently. Places aren't booking him back. Young married man wondering how he's going to pay his bills pretty soon. 
To get out of his own head, after bombing at this or that nightclub, he goes to some beatnik coffee house, uh, gets a little taste of the counterculture, is reminded once again of the freedom, the open-minded philosophies of the people performing there. Until 1964, he would live sort of a double life. He'd work in nightclubs where he couldn't say what he wanted to make ends meet. Uh, he'd do, uh, you know, material he didn't care for as much, then head to the coffee house to do much more uncensored shows and get inspired. There he could do material about, you know, integration, John Birch Society, KKK. He was at a crossroads. Like any performer, he wanted the widest audience possible to have the most financial security and the great feeling that comes with knowing a lot of people like your shit. Also wanted to be able to say what was on his fucking mind. Uh, Was he willing to risk some semblance of financial security to gain a much greater sense of artistic integrity and satisfaction? He was really grappling with this dilemma. Then adding more financial pressure to his plate in the fall of 1962, Brenda gets pregnant in New Orleans. George, thinking fast, his mind trained from hours on stage to rapidly make bold decisions, uh, karate kicks right in the womb. Was she pissed? You betcha. Did he have one less mouth to feed? Mm Mm-hmm. Desperate times. No, of course not. That's horrific. Now the couple heads to Chicago where George gets uh, gets gigs lined up with the Playboy Club. Brenda will head home to Dayton nine months later to have the baby uh, be helped by her not-so-cool parents. I'm sure she was thrilled. Back home, Brenda would actually discover that her mom was dying of cancer. She slipped into a diabetic coma died before the baby was born, Brenda overjoyed, saying, ding dong, and the witch is dead to her fetus. Uh, no, no, they had their problems, but she loved her mom and was upset and, you know, grieved her passing. But, you know, but also fuck that bitch. Uh, Brenda was stressed, stressed about uh, not having her mom to help with the baby. And before the baby would be born in December, 1962, George Carlin, once again, detained by the cops. This time for something that would continue to haunt his career. December of 1962, George was Lenny Bruce at the Gate of Horn Club in Chicago, Lenny performing when suddenly a police officer in the audience announced that the show was over and he uh, had Lenny hauled away. Lenny was used to this by now, being arrested on charges of obscenity. He'd been busted, either actually arrested or just detained so many times he started to wear a coat during his performances so he could just leave immediately with police and not lose any of his shit. That's crazy. During one two-year stretch, Lenny was arrested 15 times on obscenity charges for doing stand-up in places where people paid to watch him do stand-up. How sad is that? This time, the cops also brought in the bartender and the club's owner. And then when a cop asked to see George Carlin's ID, he said, I don't believe in identification. Sorry. Then he started to give a drunken rambling speech about freedom, basic human rights, cops being fucking assholes in these situations, that sort of thing. And they didn't like it. And he was immediately arrested. Uh, June 15th, 1963, a little while after that, you know, he was just kind of in jail overnight. Uh, Lenny Bruce actually said, uh, asked him like, you know, why he was in the car with Lenny Bruce. He got put in the same squad car when he told him he refused to give his ID. Lenny Bruce, as opposed to being like, yeah, good for you. Fuck the man. Just said, ah, schmuck. Uh, June 15th, 1963, Kelly Marie Carlin's born George and Brenda's only child. Her new family, while overjoyed at her arrival, also are essentially broken homeless. They move back to 121st Street in New York, Carlin's old stomping grounds. George has to borrow money just to stay afloat. Uh, Also decides he's going to not tour for a while. He's sick of going to play places where the people don't understand him or his references. Even though, uh, you know, their stability is on the line. They're hanging on by a thread now. Brenda supports him. At the time, the only way for struggling comics to really be seen, develop an audience, was to perform on something called a hoot. Hoot, short for a hootenanny. Originally an impromptu concert of folk music. Uh, it had evolved into a version of an amateur night where all kinds of aspiring entertainers could perform, kind of like an open mic, but much more variety. Singers, musicians, comics, jugglers, dancers, magicians, all sorts of shit. George had played his first hoot in March of 1963 in a hole-in-the-wall club called Cafe What? off Bleecker Street, kept playing hoots at the bitter end, uh, eventually caught the eye of Howie Solomon, who offered him a large coffee house style gig at the Cafe A Go-Go. 
Cafe Agogo was a Greenwich Village nightclub located in the basement of the new Andy Warhol Garrick Theater Building at 152 Bleecker Street in Manhattan. Uh, Cafe Agogo would become a centerpiece of the 60s countercultural movement, hosting jazz performers like Stan Getz, Nina Simone, uh, Mort Saul, a regular comic there. Howie offered Carlin a regular gig there, an open-ended arrangement to be a regular when the mic was open. Offered the same to one other comic, guy three younger, uh, three years younger than Carlin, Richard Pryor. How amazing. Two masters, the best two, in my opinion, to ever do it in terms of how prolific they were, how good they were, how famous they became, and how influential they were to the art form of stand-up comedy in general. George still took the occasional gig outside of New York to make enough money for his family to survive. He was lucky to get those. Uh, the go-go became his uh, comedic laboratory where he will experiment with his sets like he had in the old days. His audience was full of people who didn't accept the prescribed social values of the mainstream culture, who wanted to push the envelope, who felt alienated by regular middle-class American values. But it wasn't without its dangers. Lenny Bruce would be busted by cops at the go-go twice. Of course he would. That poor cursed son of a bitch, Big Brother, hated him. Most of the cops who were fervently busting Lenny were people that George actually knew, Irish Catholic boys who were upset that Lenny was being so cavalier about the Catholic Church. And their answer was to arrest him. Fucking dumb shits. Not real familiar with the slippery slope concept, I guess. Arresting someone, you know, for saying something you don't like opens a door for someone else to later arrest you for saying something they don't like. November 22nd, 1963, JFK shot in Dallas for real this time. Carlin had long identified with Kennedy, you know, another man of Irish ancestry. As someone who was working towards civil rights, promising a, a better world. He uh, had imitated Kennedy for years, a loving tribute to a guy who seemed like he was on the right side of history. On November 22nd, George was walking his baby daughter down 110th and Broadway when a passerby informed him of the shooting. And immediately, George called Brendan and started crying. That's how hard it hit him. He was still performing his regular set to the go-go, uh, but now he doesn't know how to move forward. This is a big cultural shift moment. Carlin doesn't see himself as an establishment social comedian, but he also wants to uh, wants more than the coffee shops in the village. He wants, you know, a TV spot. He wants to get better work. What mainstream bit, uh, you know, could he come up with? Well, he can't do his uh, JFK impression anymore. That's out, he feels. So he comes up with an idea called Indian Sergeant. The premise grew out of all the Westerns he watched on TV as a kid. On those shows, the U.S. Army or the Pioneers or Cowpokes, they always had a weather-beaten, battle-heartened sergeant or boss who gave everyone a rousing speech before a battle. And he felt like, well, uh, what if the tribe? They were fighting, had the same type of guy. <laughs> he delivered it in his working-class Irish accent. It wasn't the riskier stuff that the village crowd liked, but it worked. And it was different than what other comics were doing. And he would get a TV gig on the Merv Griffin Show, uh, a better place for George than some other programs doing this bit what made the merv griffin show different from other network shows was that it was syndicated so while it wasn't fundamentally freer than any other variety style tv show the burden of approval of things didn't weigh entirely on the producer and production staff uh, it was also uh, on a group of stations that wouldn't receive it until two weeks later there was less panic and pressure the staff more relaxed uh, doing his indian sergeant bit on the show would be george's breakthrough as a solo act in july of 1965 george goes on the merv griffin show fucking kills with this bit and they tell him they want him back Three more times. Exciting and stressful because he didn't have any more TV-friendly funny material. He would have to write more and very quickly. He did. His second set was about a radio DJ with a Wild West-themed show. Uh, after his fourth appearance, the producers now ask him to come back again and they want him to do a cycle of 13 more spots with material he does not have. And that is crazy. In need of more material, George uh, quickly writes uh, you know, a TV commercial routine, uh, sports and weather uh, reporting to his radio DJ bit and on and on and so forth. The exposure on Merv Griffin soon leads to other opportunities because he continues to do well. 
Carlin finds himself doing a co-hosting stint on the Mike Douglas show in Philadelphia, another top-rated daytime TV show syndicated by Westinghouse, uh, huge at the time. Closest thing I ever experienced anything like this, uh, like to being asked for more sets, was after uh, I did Conan the second time, the producers wanted me back, said I could submit a set anytime, and I never did. <laughs> uh, that was back in 2016, right? When I was uh, conceptualizing this podcast. I love Conan. Yeah, it'd be fun. But uh, but like George would eventually find out uh, that he just couldn't be himself on late night TV, at least not doing stand-up. I also felt that I just couldn't be myself on network stand-up spots. I could only be a very censored version of myself. And I found it honestly uh, boring. I wanted to accomplish it. I wanted to do one set that I thought was really well. And the last Conan one, I was like, okay, that's it. And uh, But I found it mechanical. And uh, also brutal honesty here, my late night spots, the few I did never led to a bunch of new followers on social media, to a bunch of new fans at shows, that kind of thing. So unlike Carlin, who had a lot of incentive to bust his ass and come up with more material, and that was the path he needed, uh, I did not have that incentive. Thank God this worked. (laughs) Uh, In October of, uh, by this I mean this podcast, in in October of 1965, now 28-year-old George Carlin, as seen on TV, Carlin, when that meant everything, well, he gets booked in Basin Street East, another New York City nightclub. Opens up for Tijuana Brass Band. People actually show up to see him here. It's fucking cool. Producer also meets him, uh, puts him on the Jimmy Dean show after seeing him there, an ABC primetime show uh, that he went on in January of 1966. And he'll get a job as a regular performer and writer then on the Kraft Summer Music Hall starring John Davidson. Like one thing, this leads to another, leads to another. And that filmed in LA starting in March 1966. So the Carlin family, excited. The future's looking bright. They pack up and they head west. He's back in LA with a, with a better job this time as a solo act. He's got to be feeling on top of the world. Uh, George would appear on Kraft as the house comic doing a set for every show. It's wild. Show featured other comics as well like Richard Pryor, Flip Wilson, musical guests like Nancy Sinatra, Everly Brothers. Here, Carlin would uh, uh, get to uh, uh, be a bit more subversive, writing characters who were clearly stoned yet could pass for just weird to more conservative middle America that would have been outraged by someone obviously stoned, uh, like his character Al Sleet, the hippy-dippy weatherman. First big character uh, that many people today still remember. Here's a clip of Carlin doing this character on The Tonight Show, and uh, so a little bit after, in 1966. And now with the latest in weather, here's Al Sleet, your hippy-dippy weatherman. <laughs> hey, baby, what's that move? Murdering. Hey, Buster! <laughs> Al Sleet here, and I imagine some of you were a little surprised at the weather over the weekend. Uh, especially if you watch my show Friday night, man. <laughs> I'd like to apologize for the weather, especially to the former residents of Rogers, Oklahoma. Really a tornado joke? Oh, them napping. <laughs> I see the radar tonight is picking up a line of thunder showers, which extends from a point nine miles south-southeast of Chester, Pennsylvania, along a line and six miles either side of a line, to a point eight miles north-northeast of Secaucus, New Jersey. However, the radar is also picking up a squadron of Russian ICBMs. <laughs> so I wouldn't sweat the thunder shower. <laughs> George. <laughs> oh my God. Johnny Carson actually like fell out of his seat and slapped the floor on that one. That's great. Uh, he'd, he'd go to do on more and more te- TV that year, you know, all while trying to figure out how to preserve his own identity while also conforming to TV's behavioral standards. Uh, starts to change his childhood dream a bit. You know, he'd been a radio DJ. He's now a comic, a successful one. Film star was next, right? Wasn't looking like it. 
Not because he didn't get parts, but because uh, when he tried uh, out for parts, he fucking hated it. He wanted to say his own words, not someone else's. <laughs> I also get this too. I was supposed to take acting classes when I lived down in LA. I, did, I never did. I got sent out on a lot of auditions at first. I hated it. Yes, wanted the money that would have come with a TV show or a movie at that time. The exposure would have been super cool. It would have been super fun to do it. But I also knew the odds were low. I would get anything because it's very competitive and I didn't like it. Other people, you know, who are good at it, love it. Love the craft. Hard enough to compete with others in entertainment when you love what you do. Almost impossible when you don't. Uh, despite feeling like acting wasn't really for him, this uh, doesn't come as a relief for George because now he has no idea what's next, right? The plan was to get leverage, uh, to leverage comedy into acting. Well, now what? Has to go harder on comedy. But first, some tragedy. Closest person Carlin had to a mentor, Lenny Bruce, dies August 3rd, 1966, age 40 in Hollywood. George and Brenda had just visited him less than two weeks before, after, right after moving to LA. Uh, by that time, Lenny was mired deep in legal battles, almost bankrupt, spending all of his money trying to vindicate himself. Was Carlin tremendously sad, of course, but as they say, the show must go on and it would for him. February of 1967, Carlin releases his first solo album, Takeoffs and Put-Ons on RCA Victor Records. Goes goes gold, baby. Very impressive for a comic. Uh, first of four records in a row that would go gold. Uh, gets nominated for a Grammy, which was awesome. Carlin loses to uh, uh, Rapey McGee. I mean, Sleepy Time uh, McSneaky Wiener. I mean, Bill, fuck that guy Cosby. So he got nominated, but, you know, didn't quite win. If you don't understand those references, uh, you got to get out more. You've needed to get out more since late 2014. Carlin is killing it in the late 1960s, making roughly uh, $250,000 a year by the end, um, which is a, the equivalent of about $2 million a year. He's got an agent, management, uh, you know, great manager, a great promoter. He's crushing it, able to take care of Brenda and their daughter, Kelly, just fine. But he starts to get bored and dissatisfied with his work. He's starting to hate late night TV, especially after he goes on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time on January 29th, 1967. Supposed to be a dream, right? This is where the Beatles broke. But for a comic and for George, it's more of a nightmare. There was no second takes. The studio audience knew that the show was live. They would uh, withhold laughter until the crowd would all laugh at the same time. Uh, Very unnatural for comedy. A nail in the coffin was that Ed Sullivan himself would stand on stage during the comedian's set, off camera but still watching. And the audience would watch Sullivan to see if he laughed. And then they would laugh. It was a terrible format for comedy. But George performed there uh, multiple times because it had a huge audience. Around one out of four people watching TV in 1967 would watch the Ed Sullivan show. Tens of millions of viewers. Carlin happy he's doing well, uh, getting these opportunities, but still not really being George Carlin on TV. He's putting on an act, not truly being himself on stage. The ultimate goal of most comics to be themselves on stage. And there's more problems at home now. Or sorry, there's problems, not more problems. Problems at home. Uh, Time to back up a bit with Brenda, his wife. While Carlin has professionally been soaring, Brenda has been spiraling. And it's largely George's fault. Brenda, when they first got together, didn't just watch his shows and party when they were on the road. Uh, she worked with him, took notes on his sets, uh, talked about, workshop new bits with him back at the hotel, uh, you know, uh, called clubs to get him more work, acted as his agent and manager, handled his promo, worked on press for him, you know, was his, uh, a promoter, accountant, et cetera. And she was good at all that. And when they moved to uh, LA, back to LA, when his star began to rise, he didn't want her to, he didn't want her to work anymore. He wanted her to be a stay-at-home mom. And while she loved their daughter, Kelly, she didn't want to also uh, not work. You know, um, essentially her husband, the love of her life, her partner in crime, had fired her. Kind of turned into her her mom again, you know? Uh, She resented the fuck out of him for this. And she started to drink heavily. She hated playing the hardline mom to George's fun-loving dad who would swoop in and spoil Kelly when he was home from the road. 
Uh, and he was on the road more and more, and they started to fight. Because they fought, because of his career opportunity, George would go on the road more than ever, which meant they fought more. Is a bad cycle. And uh, we will reconnect on the relationship later. So that's going on in the background. More on George's career now. Despite his increasing success, George is, uh, you know, again, less and less artistically satisfied. Counterculture, as the decade closes, is in full bloom, and he wants to be part of it. Instead of, uh, you know, playing to fellow hippies uh, who he's not much older than, he's playing to their conservative parents, and that's not who he is. He desperately wants to do more subversive stuff. He'll push the envelope a bit more when he does a subversive piece he wrote for the Jackie Gleason Show, which aired in January of 1969. piece was called The J. Edgar Hoover Show. He played Hoover, mocks the shit out of the longtime FBI director. Hoover, we've talked about him a few times, mentioned him earlier, uh, ran the FBI as its first director from 1935 to 1972. And in many ways was a huge piece of illegally spying on and illegally fucking with uh, anyone he deemed un-American piece of shit. 30 years later, Carlin will find out due to the Freedom of Information Act that the FBI started a file on him following that performance. One report read that an agent commented on appearance of one George Carlin, an alleged comedian, like alleged, an alleged, some people think he's funny. And that the subject of Carlin's material was the FBI and Mr. Hoover, and that his treatment of both was shoddy and in shockingly bad taste. Okay. Uh, then in late 1969, Carlin gets fired again. Marks a big turning point in his career. In the fall of 69, he was fired from his residency at the Frontier Hotel in Vegas for saying the word ass, losing out on an extremely lucrative two-year deal. With the counterculture in full fucking swing, the epic Woodstock Music Festival had just went down weeks earlier. He gets fired for saying ass. Clearly the Frontier Hotel not catering to the youth. Uh, He gets fired for telling a very tame joke by Carlin Sanders. He said, I got no ass. You might notice. I go right from the shoulders to the heels like most Irish guys. No ass. When I was in the service, black guys used to see me in the showers and say, hey man, where your ass at? Stud got no ass. That's it. That was enough to get him fired. And, uh, And after that, oh, fuck yeah. He dabbles a bit in LSD. Starts, starts uh, dropping some acid. October of 1969, he's playing at a jazz club in Chicago called Mr. Kelly. He's trying to figure out his life. And over the course of the two-week gig, he uh, drops acid between five and ten times. Later, couldn't remember exactly how much he had done. It was a profound turning point for him. He felt like the drug finally allowed him to see how to get from one place to the next, how to change his life. Yes! Psychedelics. They get so demonized. But what about the valuable pers- They used to. Less now. now. I just think about the valuable perspective shift they can give you. Like, would Hendrix have been Hendrix without acid? I don't think so. I think it allowed him to access his brain in different special ways. It took his guitar work from being technically very proficient to uh, otherworldly. The Beatles, they would not have made the fucking White Album without acid. Seriously. After their first experience with LSD in 1966, the Beatles' John Lennon and George Harrison insisted that Paul and Ringo experience the psychedelic. John and I decided that Paul and Ringo had to have acid because we couldn't relate to them anymore, not just on one, uh, on the one level. We couldn't relate to them on any level because acid had changed us so much. That's what Harrison told Rolling Stone in 1971. McCartney tried it in 1967 and later in an interview said that the drug, quote, explained the mystery of life. The White Album, double album, actually, epic masterpiece recorded months later. Paul Simon used psychedelics to refocus his perspective numerous times in his career. Uh, Sting has. A shit ton of actors, Silicon Valley innovators, etc. have have used it to to great effect. The long-term effects on my craft yet to be seen, but I've been experimenting more and more with psychedelics recently, actively trying to burrow further and further into my subconscious, shed certain fears and habits and, you know, perceived limitations and negativity 
so I can try and transform into the best version of myself. And I know that might sound fucking crazy to say out loud, but I value psychedelics as important tools. And mental health-wise, I'm the most in touch with my emotions and the happiest I've ever been. I'm the best father, husband I've been in years, maybe ever. And I think, uh, you know, time will tell. I'll be the best comic and podcaster I've ever been. We'll see. Maybe psychedelics will somehow give me the ability to consistently pronounce shit correctly. Doubt it. I kind of like my mush mouth, actually. Uh, It's a nice arrogance deterrent. When I start sitting a bit too high on the horse, I'm reminded that I can barely speak coherently. And I'm lucky to do this professionally. Anyway, psychedelics, not for everyone, dangerous for some, but miraculous for others. And I don't think Carlin would have become Carlin, the Carlin we know, had he not shattered his previous identity with LSD and then rebuilt himself. After tripping balls for two weeks, traveling through time and fucking space deep into his own mind, he still has to do his gigs that he scheduled before the acid, like the Copacabana in New York. He does his act there. The act he doesn't want to do anymore. Indian sergeant, hippy-dippy weatherman, wonderful wino. Standard shit I've been doing for a few years. Heart's not in it. He starts making fun of the theater itself at one point lying down on the floor under the piano, <laughs> describing what it looked like underneath. He's high as shit. Audience didn't care for it. This goes on for three weeks. On the final performance, the theater simply cuts off the lights and mic during the last minutes of his performance. That's hardcore. That's how you know the staff fucking hates your guts. Uh, last performance happened on uh, January 6, 1970. He'd now been fired from two of the most respected mainstream venues for comics in the country. Uh, he will have at least one good review, though. A lot of reviewers are tearing him apart right now. Uh, his mom, Mary, is not. I find this very touching. Uh, strangely, this was not covered in the recent HBO two-parter about him. Well, I didn't finish the second part, uh, which really demonized his mother in the first part. But she wrote a letter to her son that read, Dear George, I should be on the checkout line uh, at the supermarket, but I must say these words to you. Please read these reviews. You will someday be a Beckett or a Joyce or maybe a Bernard Shaw. You seem to have their kind of disturbance. Someday you will release what you have down inside of you and it will be listened to and heard. They condemn you for idolizing Lenny Bruce, how little they really know what you see in his courage, sincerity, and daring. Please, George, insist on being yourself. Don't let anyone change you or silence you. I'm so hungry for a heart-to-heart with you. Why have I got this restlessness, this groping for answers, which I sometimes feel I have passed on to you? Do you follow me, George? Why can't I quiet this undisciplined questioning of what goes on around us? Why am I so caught up in it? Hail fucking Nimrod. That gave George the final push he needed and the beast was unleashed. Two weeks later, Carlin, who'd grown a beard, did the radio and television correspondence dinner in Washington, D.C., talked about the government's lies and inconsistencies, starts stirring shit up politically, goes head-to-head with Representative Bob Dornan of Orange County, who was uh, on a tirade about these hippies desecrating the flag. George calls him out and says, wait a minute, a flag is supposed to represent everything that a country does. It doesn't only represent the good things. If you burn the flag, you're burning the flag for what you perceive to be the bad things the country has done. It's only a symbol. It's only a piece of cloth. And he's fucking right. Carlin understood context. He understood nuance. He saw shit from other people's perspectives. He didn't just say uh, lazily, well, this is the way things are done. That's the way they always are. I'm right. Lost in some of his jokes was the depth of understanding he had for the human experience, for how gray most of life really is. And when you see life that way, and I try to as well, it's very hard to, uh, like a lot of politicians and mainstream media sources who want to simplify shit into catchy slogans and take the nuance out of issues and make them black and white, you know, just uh, um, make them binary because that works. That rallies those who can't or don't want to look at things complexly into clean little voting blocks, clean little marketing bases. It's manipulative and very effective. 
but you don't have to fall for it. If you expand your mind, if you start looking for the gray, when you see the gray, you see the manipulation around you continually perpetuated by self-serving politicians and greedy corporations, and you might just start to hate those motherfuckers and want to call out their toxic lies. It gets hard not to hate the crowds that so willingly lap up their lies and rally around simple-minded shit as well. People who scream like, oh, you can't say that, you can't do that but don't actually have any intellectual argument to back up their fucking hollow opinions. They shot with certainty because they don't, uh, they don't have any arguments. They just uh, are yelling shit because they uh, got some half-baked notion of being right. And that's enough for them because they don't fucking look into themselves or because the idiot next to them just yelled the same shit. Carlin, he was, uh, he was in this headspace. Now he's about to get real fucking real comedy bone to rock hard again. August, 1970, George gets booked again at the frontier hotel in Vegas. And promptly gets fired again <laughs> for considering the double meanings of the word shit on stage. He says, uh, I don't say shit. Down the street, Buddy Hackett says shit. Red Fox says shit. I don't say shit. I smoke a little of it, but I don't say it. It's just a throwaway line. But it was enough to get him fired. The reaction he gets leads to him uh, to expand the line into a bigger piece. He's doubling down now on what the casino managers, other suits are telling him not to say. Uh, writing and performing. I got fired last year in Las Vegas for saying shit in a town where the big game is called craps. That's some kind of double standard. I'm sure there was some Texans standing out in the casino yelling, oh shit, I crapped. And they fly those guys in for free. Fired me? Shit. Get into as much trouble saying shit as you can smoking it down there. Shit's a nice word. Friendly, happy word. Handy word. The middle class has never really been into shit as a word. Not really comfortable. You'll hear it around the kitchen if someone drops a casserole. Oh shit, look at the noodles. Oh shit, don't say that, Johnny. Just hear it. Sometimes they say shoot, but they can't kid me. Shoot is shit with two O's. The use of shit is always figurative speech. Get that shit out of here, will you? Move that shit. I don't want to hear that shit. Don't give me that shit. I don't have to take that shit. You're full of shit. Think I'm a shithead or something? always figurative. You never hear anyone say, look at the little pieces of shit in the street, Martha. They don't say that. They have other words for that. Doo-doo, caca, poo-poo, and good old number two. Could never figure that one out, man. How do they arrive at that? Out of all the numbers, two gotta mean shit. My dog does number five. That's three ones and a two. (laughs) Soon this routine, which uh, he called shoot, uh, would evolve into seven words, arguably the centerpiece of his career. Uh, Talking about something that had happened to him, he found his way into a new, real, more natural kind of comedy, and he'd once again be fired for it. On November 30th, 1970, the Daily Variety reported, comic George Carlin was canceled and asked to leave Lake Geneva, Wisconsin Playboy Club after the audience got ugly during his second show Saturday night. Management said it feared for his safety. It was his shtick about materialism in American society, press censorship, poverty, Nixon Agnew and the Vietnam War that apparently incensed the late night crowd. Club manager said Carlin, quote, insulted the audience directly and used offensive language and material. Reacting to his statements about poverty, one woman heckled, you don't know anything about poverty. We don't have any in this country. (laughs) A comment about going through Cambodia to get out of Vietnam brought the retort, how do you know? You've never been shot at. Club manager said comic would have been in danger if he'd gone anywhere the audience could have got to him. How dare Carlin actually share well thought out opinions about important shit. That audience members had no thought or uh, thought out counter uh, fucking opinions to say back. Here's an idea for anyone uh, uh, listening to this podcast who might go to a stand-up comedy show someday. If you've already bought a ticket to a comedy show and you're there, right? And the person on stage starts saying something you find offensive. How about instead of saying something back, you, I don't know, just shut the fuck up and listen and don't ruin the show for others. And maybe actually think about what they said. Maybe analyze yourself a bit. Why did it upset you? 
was it truly offensive? Or are you just choosing to let the words of a stranger that don't actually uh, uh, really need to offend you bother you more than they need to? Are you choosing to be weak-minded? If you really just can't take it, how about you just show some class, quietly leave, try not to upset other patrons who may be enjoying the show on your way out, and don't let the fucking door hit you on the ass when you leave. It's like, it's pretty simple, but a lot of people can't get it. Carlin's crowds couldn't get it here. Uh, George would later remember how scary this experience was. It was one thing to be heckled. It was another to be heckled by 200 people, many of whom wanted to harm you. He wondered if any of them had a gun. Management told them that they uh, could not guarantee his safety if he remained on the premises. He was shaken up, and I get it. Also shaken up by losing a lot of money getting fired from all these places. He can't afford the mortgage for the family's new house in Calabasas now. The he, Brenda, and Kelly, who's seven now, uh, they have to move back into an apartment complex. Then they move again to another apartment, Venice Beach on Pacific Avenue, where George starts to smoke pot daily, really get into his head. When Brenda brings up her financial worries, George accuses her of being a middle-class Midwestern Protestant conventional thinker. He's feeling trapped between the things he wants for himself and his commitments to his family. His career is in a downward spiral. His marriages as well. Brenda's drinking more than ever. Then in the middle of all this, Brenda finds out that she's pregnant again, unable to afford another child. George arranges a secret abortion in an apartment somewhere in Burbank. It's fucking scary. Brenda has to be blindfolded, picked up in a parking lot. Fuck, life is not uh, going well for the Carlin, so she won't know where this place is to identify the doctor. Uh, Carlin uh, doesn't let all this break him. He now realizes that the key to feeling like he's uh, being his authentic self is not to try and identify with the counterculture to some extreme inauthentic extent, but just to tell the truth about where he came from, what shaped him, how he thinks. He starts to play coffee houses, folk clubs again, makes a little bit of money. Finally starts getting real laughs, not polite little titters like you got at nightclubs, not a polite little applause break, real belly laughs. This affirms he's uh, heading in the right direction. He changes his appearance to match his new material. He grows his hair out long. You know, he has a beard, starts wearing earrings, t-shirt, blue jeans. Uh, some people think these changes are great. Some people don't. One review from the early seventies would read, George Carlin has become a showbiz mystery. Uh, one of the very best young contemporary clowns. He had a splendid comic spirit, a fresh new outlook on comedy. Got the top TV bookings. Has been considered for several terribly remunerative uh, TV talk show chairmanships. His material was attractive to teenagers, college kids, and mature marrieds. His record sold friskily and all seemed right in his straight future. Carlin now seems an artistic dropout. His clothes, incensed hangdog demeanor, long ponytail style hairdo, grubby pants, totally unwashambling, savagely apologetic aspect as if speaking straight from a hobo jungle combined in his new style Essentially, no style at all beyond a belligerent, truculent statement. This is exactly what he wanted. He lost some TV bookings by dressing strangely for a comedian at the time, when clean-cut, well-dressed comedians were the norm. He now hires talent managers Jeff Wald, Ron de Blasio, to help him change his image, making him look uh, uh, more attractive, more hip to a younger audience. Wald puts George into smaller clubs, the bitter end of New York City, the Troubadour in West Hollywood, goes from making over $250,000 a year to making less than fifteen grand during his transformative year. And he's supposed to be providing for the family. His male ego getting judo chopped right to the throat in 1970. But real good things coming around the corner. 1970 record producer Monty Kay forms Little David Records, a subsidiary of Atlantic, which comedian Flip Wilson uh, was a co-owner of. Kay and Wilson signed Carlin uh, away from RCA Records, record a Carlin performance at Washington, D.C.'s Cellar Door in May of 71, released as FM and AM in January of 72. The real Carlin's first album. And it becomes a hit. Right, gold record. The record marks uh, Carlin's change from mainstream to counterculture comedy, showing his full journey from nightclub comedian to authentic performer. The AM side was an extension of Carlin's previous style with zany but relatively clean routines, parodying aspects of American life. 
AM radio was thought to be a conservative and square. The FM side introduced Carlin's new style, references to weed and birth control pills. FM was counterculture. The, the album, uh, like his first, you know, goes gold, but it's, uh, he's way more proud of this one. A lot of people resonate with the AM-FM split. It would even win George his first Grammy, which he would find out during the taping of his next special, which is fucking awesome, how good it must have felt to have risked it all and then, you know, now he's gaining it. Now he's gaining, you know, uh, gaining it back the right way, the way he wants it. He and Brenda, you know, they were broke, had to borrow money to pay bills. Then he uh, makes it, uh, making so much money, not happy creatively, risks it all. Um, all that they had just made goes back to being broke, has it almost all fall apart, but now he's soaring again. This dude had big fucking balls. Just four months after FM and AM, he would record Class Clown. Finding all of this new material he'd been thinking about for years, but was never brave enough to do, was just bursting out of him. During this time, George perfects his uh, well-known seven dirty words routine, which most notably appears on his album Class Clown as follows. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Here's how the bit starts. There are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to seven. They must be really bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. All of you over here, you seven, you bad words. With album came money. Awesome. But also a new cocaine habit. Uh, Not awesome. He wasn't just doing a little bit of blow either. Doing loads of it. And uh, speaking of blow. Uh, time to take a little quick break from our narrative. Uh, just one more quick sponsor, and then we'll jump right back into it. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Whipple! Seven Dirty Words Edition. Whipple Seven Dirty Words Edition is made with so much fucking cocaine, it's barely liquid. And also some green tea and orange juice to shut down the shakes. Also, some PC fucking pee and profanity. You silly, tit-sucking, cunt-licking, cocksucker, shit-eating, piss-drinking, dull-eyed motherfucker. Naughty words got you upset, Karen? Profanity make your peanut brittle butthole fold in on itself, Todd? Well, fuck both you dumb fuck-ass cunts. Fuck you, sleep, the government, giant corporations, controlling religious institutions, people who take uh, too long to order their coffee, uh, people who don't tip. Fuck your mom, Bill Cosby, Bill Cosby's mom. Fuck Trump and Biden. Fuck them all. And mostly, fuck you, fuck your family, and drink Whipple! Seven Dirty Words Edition. New Lenny Bruce Pina Colada and Bill Hicks Coca-Cola flavors now available. Wow, that was the, uh, that was the most inflammatory uh, flavor of Whipple yet. Eh, whatever. As long as I keep, uh, you know, buying spots, we'll, uh, we'll keep having them on the show. Uh, George would record Class Clown, May 27th, 1972. Uh, he'd later say that he wanted to be sharp and lucid, so he swore to himself that he wouldn't use coke during the recording. In other words, he's doing so much coke, he has to think consciously about not doing too much coke. Uh, on the liner notes, uh, Carlin dedicates the album to Lenny Bruce for taking all the risks. Uh, love it. Lenny Bruce, thank you part. Uh, not doing so much uh, coke. Yes, think consciously about not doing it. Don't love that. Carlin will now play colleges to college students, having uh, uh, reliving the years, excuse me, that he didn't get to have. He'll also play Carnegie Hall, his mom, brother Patrick, in the audience, uh, a lot of old friends. He has to have the experience of prestige without compromising his artistic identity. Uh, everywhere he's going, he's doing that seven dirty words routine. And then on July 21st, 1972, Carlin is arrested after performing the seven words routine, one of numerous times he'd be arrested, uh, at Milwaukee Summerfest. And like Bruce before him, charged with violating obscenity laws. This is how the AP reported it. Comedian George Carlin was taken into custody Friday night and charged with disorderly conduct after he allegedly used profanity during a performance at Summerfest, a 10-day festival on the city's lakefront. Henry Jordan, executive director of Summerfest, said, Carlin got up on stage and he used a lot of profanity. 
the police went up on stage after he had finished his act and arrested him. Jordan said he supported the police, adding that many in the crowd of 70,000 were children. Oh no, not the children. I wonder what those precious children did after hearing motherfucker and tits. They probably tried to burn down the city. They probably all went to prison as adults for rape and murder and bestiality, all that they engaged in after hearing about those filthy titties. Uh, According to the arresting officer and complainant, Patrolman Elmer G. Lenz, about 40 of the many thousands of children were youths in wheelchairs who were physically unable to leave the showgrounds, even if they found the show in bad taste. Oh, God, not the wheelchair-bound children. Sure, they could survive the challenge of finding purpose in life and persevering without the use of their legs and perhaps arms as well, but could they handle words like cocksucker and cunt? Why, God? Why is Carlin doing this to the precious paralyzed children? Haven't they suffered enough, O oh Lord? Uh, they almost nailed Carlin for more than obscenity this time. Brenda was actually with him that night. Lucky for George. She brought him a water on stage using that as a guise, uh, as an excuse to tell him that the police were there and maybe dispose of the vial of Coke in his pocket on his way off stage. So, bravo, Brenda. Uh, his subsequent trial becomes a major part of George's legacy. He's represented by the distinguished civil rights attorney, William Coffey. I uh, won't really need him, though. The case is thrown out by Judge Geringer in December of 1972, declaring that the language was indecent, but that Carlin had the freedom to say it as long as he caused no disturbance. A clip from Class Clown was played for the judge. During the recording, wrote the Milwaukee Journal, Judge Geringer grinned and laughed softly, though self-consciously. Also, the assistant DA uh, for that court was at the fucking show and testified that the audience loved it so much they gave him a standing ovation. I mean, I mean most, you know, the paralyzed kids didn't do that. They're, they were too upset by what he'd said. You know, or they were just still paralyzed. Uh, After narrowly avoiding trouble in Milwaukee, George does get into trouble again the following year or actually gets a radio station in trouble. 1973, a man complained to the FCC after listening with his son to a similar routine, uh, Filthy Words from Carlin's third album, Occupation Fool, released in 73, which is broadcast one afternoon over uh, New York City radio station WBAI, October uh, 30th, 1973, on a program called Lunch Pail. The routine began like this, referring to the seven dirty words routine. The list is open to amendment. Lots of people pointed things out to me, and I noticed some myself. The first thing that we noticed that the word fuck was really repeated in there because the word motherfucker is a compound word. It's another form of the word fuck. If you want to be a purist, it can't be on the list of basic words. Also, cocksucker is a compound word, and neither half is really dirty. The word sucker is merely suggestive. The man complaining wasn't just your average Joe. He was a guy named John Douglas, member of the board of a large right-wing watchdog group called Morality and Media. I hate him. Uh, Pacifica received a citation from the FCC for violating regulations that prohibit broadcasting obscene material. The Supreme Court upheld the FCC action by a vote of five to four, ruling that the routine was indecent but not obscene, and that the FCC had authority to prohibit such prohibit such broadcasts during hours when kids were likely to be among the audience. Okay. Uh, after some back and forth. Between the FCC and WBAI, the FCC released in 1975 a declaratory, declaratory order concerning the broadcast of indecent language, defining indecent as words that describe in terms patently offensive as measured by contemporary community standards, sexual or extra, <laughs> excretory shit uh, activities and piss, you know, and organs at times of the day when there is a reasonable risk that children may be in the audience. The FCC found George's routine to be indecent by that standard and put the, what amounted to a warning in WBAI's license file. Pacifica fights this, wins uh, in the U.S. Court of Appeals. The FCC appeals to the Supreme Court. And in 1978, the Supreme Court finds in favor of the FCC 5-4. to four. LA Times and runs. This is a big fucking deal. 
uh, ran the news as its front page lead on July 3rd, 1978. Court bans seven dirty words. Blair's the headline. Justice John Paul Stevens wrote the majority decision, saying the broadcast media have established a uniquely pervasive presence in the lives of all Americans. Patently offensive, indecent material presented over the airwaves confronts the citizen in the privacy of the home, where the individual's right to be left alone plainly outweighs the First Amendment rights of an intruder. Or they could fucking turn the radio off. Uh, to say that one may avoid further offense by turning off the radio. Okay. Uh, when he hears indecent language, is like saying the remedy for an assault is to run away after the first blow. Okay, drama queen. Easy. Words don't break bones like assaults do. Fuck face. Uh, Justice William Brennan wrote the dissent. In our land of cultural pluralism, there are many who think, act, and talk differently from the members of the court and who do not share their fragile sensibilities. Ah, throwing some shade at the other judges. Uh, It is only an acute ethnocentric myopia that enables the court to approve censorship of the communication solely because of the words they contain. The court's decision is another of the dominant culture's efforts to force those groups who do not share its mores to conform to its own way of thinking, acting, and speaking. Hail Justice Brennan. Well said. Uh, The best part to George was that uh, all nine members of the Supreme Court had to sit around and listen to uh, the filthy words bit. Uh, Despite this ruling, things overall going great for George. I mean, if anything, all this court drama just, you know, got him a lot of great free press. You know, he's edgy, making Big Brother nervous, uh, splashed on the front page. Uh, He and his family move out of their apartment, move into a new house in an awesome neighborhood of Pacific Palisades. I used to write at a coffee shop there all the time in Pacific Palisades when I was living in Santa Monica. Love that uh, area. Uh, unfortunately, Carlin also doing a fuck ton of blow. Uh, once he got so high, he thought the sun was exploding. Told his daughter they had less than 10 minutes to live. Not a great dad move. Uh, very often he wouldn't eat. We'd go up to six days without sleep or food. He's so strung out, he's hallucinating. He said uh, once he sat in his room and thought he had a conversation with six other people. None of them were there. Uh, he didn't know if the coke was making him hallucinate or sleep deprivation brought on by the coke. Touring somehow going better than ever though. And he buys a jet, an Aero Commander, 1121 Jet Commander, Flies everywhere, usually with his friend, the singer and hit songwriter, Kenny Rankin. Rankin opened up for Carl in a lot of shows with his acoustic set. And they both do a fucking ton of blow. Brenda's at home doing blow as well. Everyone but their daughter, Kelly, doing blow at this time. She'll do blow later. It's not good. Brenda's also doing Valium, sitting around, drinking, snorting cocaine, doing Valium, going out shopping. She's depressed. Feels she has no purpose outside of motherhood. Starts acting out violently now. Starts hitting George at home. He sometimes gets physical with her as well. Kelly's turning 12 in 1975. This is all terrible. Her mom is so fucked up. She's having hallucinations too, right? The drug's making her paranoid. She's seen people standing on the roof, seeing mobs of people in the, in the streets that are not there. One night, George comes home unexpectedly and she tries to stab him with a knife, unaware that uh, he's her husband. They're now sometimes wielding knives at each other, yelling, Kelly having to intervene to keep them from killing each other. Shit is fucking bonkers in the Carlin home. Then Carlin's mom, Mary, moves uh, in, flies out from New York, becomes Brenda's drinking partner, makes things worse. By 1975, Brenda will spend the, you know, most days, the whole day drinking wine, talking shit about George, sleeping on the couch, crawling to the kitchen for more booze from time to time. Soon she can't even walk because she's shaking so badly. She weighs less than 90 pounds. Carlin's starting to miss gigs now, uh, claiming he's sick with shit like laryngitis. Sometimes he does have laryngitis, but not from a virus. He's lost his voice from screaming shit while partying high as fuck on cocaine for days at a time. Finally, in August 1975, Brenda hits rock bottom with her alcoholism. After another fight with George, she gets into her car to go down the hill to the Santa or Santa Inez Inn, crashes the car into the lobby. 
Santa Monica police arrest her. Friend at Atlantic Records gets the case dropped, luckily. Kind of. I mean, it's pretty fucked up. Uh, Brenda went to uh, St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica now as a patient at the Chemical Dependency Center. They didn't have private treatment centers for alcoholism at that point, that time. First two weeks, she just detoxes, right? And then doctors diagnose her with chronic active hepatitis and give her two years to live. Brenda does not accept this death sentence, though. She gets clean. She will stay clean and she fights. She has Mary, huge enabler at that point in her life, flown back to New York, starts going to weekly AA meetings and she'll prove the doctors wrong. Also reconnects with George. Their marriage will be saved. Brenda is fucking back, baby. Uh, she's back to being George's business partner. They're more in love than ever. He'll never cut her out of his career again. She'll become a producer on a number of his HBO specials, even work on other specials, work as, uh, for HBO as a producer, talent coordinator, uh, does her own other shit as well, becomes a counselor for other people dealing with drug addiction at the VA. Carlin, though, still not sober. Carlin will host the premiere broadcast of NBC's Saturday Night Live. What an honor. October 11th, 1975. He requests not to appear on any sketches, though. Why? Because he's super fucked up on coke. Producers have to literally break down his hotel room door to find him to host the show. It's that bad. Despite this chaos, he starts appearing on The Tonight Show more than ever. He's even asked to guest host. Puts out a fifth album in 1975, An Evening with Wally Londo, featuring Bill Slazo. Not a hit, though like his earlier albums. The drugs, ah, they're affecting him. Uh, he ends up appearing on Perry Como's Hawaiian Holiday uh, on a variety show, Tony Orlando and Don. Not because he loves those shows, because other shows are starting to stop book him now. His sixth album, On the Road, is one he will later call directionless and unstructured. He's just doing too much drugs. Uh, tries to make a special with animated interludes called The Animated George Carlin, but has to shelve it because he's run out of money because he's not getting the same amount of work and he's doing too much blow. He's selling fewer and fewer tickets. People are thinking he's peaked and it's all over for him. And then he stops performing completely for a time in 1978. Unbeknownst to most of his fans, he's had a heart attack. The first of several. It was in the septal branch artery. One morning, he's driving Kelly to school. His jaw feels tight, right? Doing blow like your fucking Scarface for years. Not the best recipe for a healthy heart. And he spends two days in the hospital. Uh, Still, he'll land during this period the first of his new legendary HBO specials. The first two airing in 1977, 1978. Carlin continued doing HBO specials every year or two over the following decade and a half. All of his albums for the rest of his career will be from these specials. Though in the beginning, it just seemed more like uh, regular TV, except he could say fuck more than normal. Or I guess a lot, as compared to not at all. Also in 1970, he starts having trouble with his daughter Kelly, who's now 15. She's in high school. She's smoking pot constantly. Falls in with a group of kids, uh, children of celebrities, begins to spiral out of control, gets into an abusive relationship with one, uh, ramps up her drug use with, no surprise, coke, quaaludes. George finds out about the abusive relationship, goes to the kid's dad's uh, house, says, don't let that kid uh, you know, near my daughter anymore. When the kid does try to come over, he chases him away with a fucking baseball bat. Wild times continue at the Carlin household. 1980, George uh, leaves Monty, drifts for a while without management. His career has fallen flat. He can still draw enough of an audience for uh, a tour, but there's nothing new, inventive, exciting about his material. And other comedians are noticing. For the first time, his peers are now publicly shitting on the now 43-year-old comic. In an article in Rolling Stone, Cheech Marin, uh, Cheech Marin from Cheech and Chong says, George Carlin is irrelevant. God damn it. Uh, ir- irrelevant. George Carlin is obsolete. He's talking about peas now. If all you can talk about is peas, you're obsolete. What about the issues of the day? This was in reference to a joke uh, where George finishes with the punchline, give peas a chance. Not his finest work. And he has other problems. 
Not only has he run out of money trying to fund the illustrated George Carlin, but his money management company had run out of money trying to pay his taxes. They've been rolling it over to the following year, hoping he, hoping that future earnings would make up for the uh, all the fucking money he's snorting up his nose. They've done that for at least two years, and the money kept piling up. He's feeling like he's about to uh, lose it all again. Uh, but all of this, all this pressure, lights a fire under his ass. While he doesn't get completely clean, he does get his drug use under control, and he takes on an attitude of fuck them all. He wants to show the world that he can be better than he's ever been. He and Brenda look for new management. They find Jerry Hamza, son of one of the biggest country music promoters in America. Jerry is eager to take on George as his one big project, not managing a wide group of celebrities like some do, and get his career ship shape. He will describe his strategy with George in two words, big and hot. Jerry wants to show the world that George was not a relic from the days of disco and lava lamps. And that meant new material. So they decided to record a new album. The advance is $100,000, $200,000 less than Carlin expected, but they still go forward with it. And in 1981, Carlin returns to the stage, releasing A Place for My Stuff. It'll be the first time he uses the now famous line, why is it that the people who are against abortion are the people you wouldn't want to fuck in the first place? <laughs> he and Jerry find backers for the illustrated George Carlin. Jerry effectively deals with the IRS, the bookings, and the promoting, meaning they weren't separate. there weren't separate agency fees or promoter's fees, more profitable uh, for the Carlins now. George gets a new interview with Playboy magazine uh, back when that brand was still super relevant. He sets the record straight. Yeah, I've been around a while, but not planning on leaving the scene anytime soon. Not old news. The cut line of the piece is a candid conversation with the brilliant and still rebellious comedian about his new life after years of inactivity and a crippling cocaine habit. Carlin is now done with Coke for the moment. He'll relapse here and there, but things will never get as bad as they did before. Jerry wants him to do another special at Carnegie Hall with HBO. Uh, But then in a Dodgers game, George feels sudden tightness in his chest, uh, does not immediately register as a heart attack, more like a cramp. But when they go to the hospital uh, in the car on the way, George falls in and out of consciousness. At the hospital, a doctor tells Brenda that he's going, as in her husband is fucking dying. Doesn't seem like there's a lot the medical team can do. They throw a Hail Mary. A uh, doctor gives him a uh, strep, streptokinase, highly effective medicine for breaking up clots that at that time wasn't uh, uh, you know much in use. They were just beginning to use it in hospitals and it saves his life. He'll later have an angioplasty, a procedure where a tiny balloon is inserted in a narrowed artery and inflated to increase blood flow and he will recover and go and do Carlin at Carnegie. Even though George didn't think the material went over super well, the symbolism was powerful. Back at Carnegie Hall, where he'd been 10 years earlier at the height of his first breakthrough. Now he wasn't letting himself get anxious about his career. He looked death in the face. He knew he had to live in the moment. A flub, a muddled line, not the biggest deal after almost dying. When the special comes out in HBO 1983, it's an instant rating smash. Within a few weeks, George selling out double shows. Fucking back on top, baby. Fuck Cheech Martin. Or Marin. Fuck whatever. That gimmicky stoner comedy, one trick pony. Step aside for the legend, son. You can't hold Carlin's nutsack. The way it'll crush your little ass. I actually like Cheech. Or actually like Cheech, but uh, he's no Carlin. Uh, this special would mark the beginning of the real long-standing relationship Carlin had with HBO. Not just occasional specials, but an artistic collaboration with a network that wanted him to say whatever the fuck he wanted. They trusted him. They drew viewers who wanted the same from Carlin. What a beautiful thing. While artistically, he's entering his prime, true mastery of the form, personally, still struggling at least internally. He's angry with himself. Angry with getting into trouble for the IRS. IRS now digging into years past right? Own more money. Angry for being an absent father to Kelly. Uh, He uses that anger to motivate himself and channel it into an increasingly powerful stage voice. Jerry encourages this, excuse me, telling George frequently that he is 100% confident in him, not just as a manager, but as a friend. They become best friends. 
At one point, he will loan George over a million dollars when money is tight. That's how much he fucking believed in him. Love Jer Bear. Uh, my Jer Bear is a guy named Joe Eschenbaugh, my now longtime agent and friend. If not for his unwavering support in me since long before Time Suck began, I'd be fucked. Uh, you would not be listening to this because this would not be here. Uh, he believed in me when I had, uh, you know, when I didn't believe in myself, when I made uh, no one any money. Before him, it was Maggie Houlihan. Our partnership no longer made sense after a while. World DIY brand building podcast, not her strong suit, but she did get me a Comedy Central hour special years ago when I uh, was going through my divorce, got me into festivals, into record deals, uh, you know, and more that I needed at that time to sustain me. None of us develop in a vacuum. All artists need support. Even Lone Wolf Comics still need a Jerry. Hail Jerry Hamza. With Jerry managing him and his wife back in business, George finds another way to channel his new voice uh, with the election of Ronald Reagan, the presidency on January 20th, 81. Before he felt he really hadn't uh, uh, had any true political opinions besides general opposition to the Vietnam War and racism. He was sort of against the system uh, as a general position. But now he discovered that he stood against many of the hallmarks of the Reagan administration and his supporters. Started reading a lot of sociology and history. Discovered Noam Chomsky, Hunter S. Thompson, Gore Vidal, writers who pushed the envelope. Started thinking about the left and the right, what they stood for, right? Uh, what they stood against. You know, while he hated Reagan, he also didn't love the left. He later put his political beliefs at the time this way. I was beginning to find that a lot of my positions clashed. The habits of liberals, their automatic language, their knee-jerk responses to certain issues deserved the epithets that the right wing stuck them with. I'd see how true they often were. Here they were, banding together in packs so that I could predict what they were going to say about some event or conflict, and it wasn't even out of their mouths yet. I was very uncomfortable with that. Liberal orthodoxy was as repugnant to me as conservative orthodoxy. That wasn't an entirely new feeling. I'd worked for the Jesse Un or worked for Jesse Unruh in 1970 when he ran against Reagan during Reagan's second run for governor. My brief little brush with electoral politics. Politics. One of the rally talks I gave for UNRWA was at an Elks Lodge in Stockton. I pointed out to these Democratic liberals, you're having your meeting in a place that has excluded black members for years. Just thought you might like to know. <laughs> so in summary, he felt that both the left and the right had in many ways their heads up their fucking asses. Things have not changed much, in my opinion. Uh, while working on new political material that would appear in some of his specials in the early 80s, Brenda noticed a lump on her breast. Luckily, just a cyst. Didn't think too hard about it. After four months, goes in for a checkup. Decided to do a minor surgery to remove it. But then under the cyst, there's a tumor. The mammogram had not shown, had not spread to her lymph nodes yet. But with her previous diagnosis of hepatitis, it was going to be hard to treat. Chemo and radiation would probably kill her because her liver was so damaged. So she ends up having a modified mastectomy and then reconstructive surgery. And her life is spared again, but her health more fragile. Uh, while Brenda would live many more years, Carlin's mother Mary dies in June of 1984 at the age of 87. Carlin still has his older brother, Patrick, as far as immediate family goes. Also still wife and daughter and his work where he continues to flourish. November 10th, 1984, he hosts SNL for the second time at the age of 47. This time, not fucked up on coke and appears in several sketches. Uh, also thinking of returning to acting. Acts with Martin Short, Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest on the show. Uh, still cranking out specials, touring, just recorded 1984's Carlin on campus. Uh, he'll, record, he'll record Playing With Your Head in 1986. Also in 86, George gets a second angioplasty when another one of his arteries starts closing. Then during the procedure, the wire goes in the wrong artery, damages it, that one. A few months later, George gets angina, which indicates another closing artery. Dude had his dad's heart and had done all that blow. Not good for someone with genetically a bad heart to start with. 1987, Carlin turns 50, gets a good acting role, just like he'd hoped for as a kid. Has a major supporting role in the 1987 comedy film 
a big hit at the time, Outrageous Fortune, starring Bette Midler and Shelley Long. Plays drifter Frank Madras. Uh, he poked fun at the lingering effect of the 1960s counterculture, maybe a little bit at himself. Uh, Bette Midler knew Carlin. She once opened up for him almost 20 years earlier at a nightclub when he was shifting away from his 1960s mainstream suit and tie act uh, to the ponytailed revolutionary. Uh, she said seeing him abandon an act that was working to experiment and fail miserably in order to find his true artistic self was very inspiring and changed her life. 1988, HBO releases a special, What Am I Doing in New Jersey? It was the first place where he voiced his newfound political beliefs against the Reagan administration, thoughts he'd been tinkering around with for years now. Here's an example. I haven't seen this many people gathered in one place since they took the group photo of all the criminals and lawbreakers in the Reagan administration. 225 of them so far. 225 different people in Ronald Reagan's administration have either been fired, arrested, indicted, or convicted of either breaking the law or violating the ethics code. Later, he'd skewer American culture in general, saying, I'm the first to say it's a great country, but it's a strange culture. This has got to be the only country in the world that could come up with a disease like bulimia, where some people have no food at all, and some people eat a nourishing meal and then puke it up intentionally, where tobacco kills 400,000 people a year, but they ban artificial sweeteners because a rat died. And now they're thinking of banning toy guns, but they're keeping the fucking real ones. He described his new style as a sledgehammer, pointing out the show, uh, the slow violence of poverty, untreated disease, unemployment, hunger, discrimination. 1989, he gains popularity with the new generation of teens when he's cast as Rufus, time-traveling mentor of the title characters in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Gotta remember that movie. Uh, reprised his role in the film sequel, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, as well as the first season of the cartoon series. 1990, uh, his HBO special will see him continue to work at the top of his game, doing it again taped at the State Theater in New Brunswick. Uh, Included stronger, more disturbing pieces than in the past, like Rape Can Be Funny, where he describes, uh, uh, which he described as being less about rape, more about being uh, told what you could and couldn't say. He had a new target, identity politics, which was starting to crop up, especially on college campuses, trying to define and prohibit offensive speech. To someone who had been arrested for obscenity charges in the 70s, seemed like a return to an older time for him. 1991, Carlin has a major supporting role in the movie The Prince of Tides, starred Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand, portrays the gay neighbor of the main character's suicidal sister, also plays the role of Mr. Conductor on the PBS show Shining Time Station, narrated the show's sequences of the American and New Zealand version of the UK television series Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends from 1991 to 1995, replacing Ringo Starr. A perk to Carlin taking the role of Mr. Conductor in Shining Time Station in the first place was that he didn't have to deal with other actors. It's all green screened. But he would inadvertently traumatize kids who spotted him at airports out of uniform, much bigger than the uh, depicted on TV. He would say, I'm not on the island of Sodor. I'm not working today, but I am Mr. Conductor. Uh, Carlin also narrated the first four seasons of what would later become known as Thomas and Friends. My son Kyler loved Thomas the Tank when he was a little guy. Uh, I used to bring him tanks back from the road. Thomas, Edward, James, Percy, Henry, Toby, all of them. Uh, And he had a big set of tracks to run him on. And he would invite me to play all the time and uh, then inevitably get mad at me for somehow not knowing how the tanks were moving around exactly like he had envisioned. And then he would take the tanks from me and show me the right way to play with him. So it was good times. <laughs> it actually was good times. Uh, according to Britt Allcroft, who developed both shows, on the first day of the assignment, Carlin was so nervous about recording his narration without an audience that the producers put a stuffed teddy bear in the booth to stare at him. And it worked. Pretty adorable. Uh, 1992 would mark another HBO special, Jammin' in New York, filmed April 22nd that year. Carlin about to turn 55, considered by uh, many to be his best special. 
I can't say since I have intentionally not watched a lot of his specials. Uh, I, I love him, but I've always been worried to be, uh, I'd be overly influenced if I watched too much since I think like him, uh, in some ways already, maybe now I've been doing it long enough. I can, uh, not worry about that happening anymore. Uh, this special recorded just over a year after the end of the Gulf war. Most Americans saw the U S actions there as favorable. People were riding high in a wave of patriotism, but Carlin saw that there were also inconsistencies in the way the government shared information with the public. DOD satellite photos of Iraqi troops amassing at the Saudi border, which actually showed the empty desert. Uh, George highlighted this kind of bullshit, talking about how the U.S. loves war, how it definitely wins when it comes to bombing the shit out of any country full of brown people, only brown people. The last white people we bombed were the Germans because they were trying to dominate the world, and that's our job. (laughs) By the end, people were cheering at every line, especially when George compared a bomb to a dick and said America had to thrust his dick into other nations. George now really starts to see his job as uh, not only entertaining people, but making them think. Keeps taking more and more artistic risks, understanding that laughter, not the only proof of success. He can also appreciate an audience responding to his words in other ways. 93, Carlin begins a weekly Fox sitcom, The George Carlin Show, playing New York taxi cab driver, George O'Grady. The show, created and written by The Simpsons co-creator Sam Simon, ran 27 episodes through December of 95. In his autobiography, George said about The George Carlin Show, I had a great time. I never laughed so much, so often, so hard as I did with cast members, Alex Rocco, Chris Rich, Tony Stark. There was a very strange, very good sense of humor on that stage. I was incredibly happy when the show was canceled, Uh, but I was incredibly happy. I was frustrated that it had taken me away from my true work, right? He'll still act from time to time, but never at the expense of uh, stand-up, right? He had done what he needed to do. He'd been in some movies, been in a sitcom. He'd uh, done all the variety shows. He, uh, you know, he, he was there. He did it. But he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt now that stand-up was his true love. Uh, 96, George does another HBO special, Back in Town, which has his uh, still famous abortion piece in it. He'll point out there wasn't anything pro-life about being obsessed with the unborn, but then refusing to live in child health care and education. There was nothing pro-life about sending the kid off in uniform at age 18 to die. There were no funerals for miscarriages, he said, and women didn't get prosecuted for murder for being on their periods, a.k.a. disposing of their eggs. This bit always riled the crowd up not always in a good way. People would get up and walk out. Carlin didn't give a fuck. He could laugh at stuff like this now. He's proven himself. He has fuck you money. If some people can't take a few of his jokes, fuck him. He still has the support of HBO, of his wife, Brenda, and his manager, Jerry. He's more committed than ever to taking audiences on a walk through his mind, including its darkest corners. George is honored February of 1997 at the Aspen Comedy Festival with a retrospective George Carlin, 40 years of comedy, hosted by John Stewart. That's fucking nuts. Uh, his first hardcover book, Brain Droppings, came out in 1997 as well. Sold nearly 900,000 copies. Spent 40 weeks in the New York Times bestseller list. August 5th, 1997, bad news. Brenda diagnosed with cancer again. Doctors give her only three to four months to live, and this time she will not beat the spread. Trying to stay optimistic, with Brenda's blessing, George keeps working. But he has to quickly fly home to LA May 11th, 1997, when Brenda abruptly crashes. She was on life support by the time George got there from New York. And she would die later that same day, just over a month after her diagnosis. She was only 57. While freelancing as an HBO talent coordinator on 17 comedy specials, she would end up being credited with helping discover many now famous stand-up talents. Gary Shandling, Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, Harry Anderson, and Howie Mandel. 11 years early, 1986, she'd established the Parkview Stage Company, non-profit equity waiver theater housed in LA's Park Plaza Hotel that assisted the careers of many up-and-coming comedians. She'd overcome a lot of struggles at times in her marriage to George. And like him, she did so much for the world of stand-up. So hail Brenda Carlin. 
About six months later, George will meet Sally Wade, a comedy writer based in Hollywood. They'll fall for each other quickly, but George is hesitant to start seeing someone you know, so soon after Brenda's death. Uh, Sally will wait for him. Over a year later, George and Sally will marry in a private ceremony, June 24th, 1998. Uh, very little known about her. Other than her being uh, Carlin's second wife, uh, he's rarely spoken about her. He rarely did speak about her publicly. According to her bio at publisher Simon & Schuster, she's written over 35 screenplays, TV episodes, and development deals. Has written for Norman Lear, The Beach Boys, President Ford, George Clooney, Elliot Gould, Doobie Brothers, and more. Doobie Brothers, Michael McDonald, get out of here. Uh, internet guesses that she's, uh, she's about 20 years younger than George. 1999, George does another special for HBO. You are all diseased. Such great titles. 2001, Char- uh, Carlin's given a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 15th Annual American Comedy Awards. December of 2003, over 30 years after he first got uh, in trouble for that obscenity bit, or first got in obscenity trouble for that, you know, seven words bit, California Congressman Doug Ose introduces a bill to outlaw the broadcast of Carlin's seven dirty words, including compound use of such words and phrases with each other or with other words and phrases and other grammatical forms of such words and phrases, including verb, adjective, uh, gerund, participle, and infinitive forms. The bill omitted tits, uh, replaced it with asshole. Not one of uh, Carlin's original seven words. The bill was referred to the House Judiciary Com- uh, Subcommittee on the Constitution in January of 2004, where it was uh, fortunately tabled. This guy, this Doug, he, he looks exactly like the kind of fun-killing douche who would introduce that bill. Looks like a Boy Scout troop leader who is also a pedophile. Uh, 2021, Osa, uh, then 66, announced his intention to run for governor of California in the recall election of Gavin Newsom, but uh, then backs out after his heart attack. Probably had, probably had a heart attack because someone, uh, maybe someone said cocksucker or motherfucker around him, you know? Oh, oh gosh dang, are you trying to kill me with your, with your filth? Uh, 2004, Naughty George shows back up. Now 67-year-old comic gets fired from Vegas yet again. His run at the MGM Grand Las Vegas is terminated after an altercation with the audience. <laughs> still getting into altercations. I love he's still fiery. After a poorly received set filled with lots of dark references to suicide bombings and beheadings, Carlin complained that he could not wait to get out of this fucking hotel in Las Vegas, and he wanted to go back east, he said, where the real people are. He continued, people who go to Las Vegas, you've got to question their fucking intellect to start with. (laughs) He's out of meltdown. Traveling hundreds and thousands of miles to essentially give your money to a large corporation is kind of fucking moronic. That's why I'm always getting here. I'm getting these fucking people with very limited intellects. (laughs) And then an audience member literally shouts, stop degrading us. Love that someone actually used the word stop degrading us. And then, uh, you know, Carlin apologized. Yeah, right. Now he told him to fucking blow him. <laughs> uh, and he was then immediately fired. And soon thereafter, his representative announced that he would begin treatment for alcohol and prescription painkiller addiction on his own initiative. Well, was that the problem? Or did they just see the real George? Uh, George would perform his 13th HBO special, November 5th, 2005, called Life is Worth Losing. His title's getting darker. During the set, he mentions that he's uh, now 341 days sober. His new, uh, he toured his new material through the first half of 2006. At the first stop in February at the Tashi Palace Casino in Lenmore, California, he mentions, his, uh, mentions that the appearance is his first show back after a six-week hospitalization for more heart problems, heart failure, and pneumonia. Dude's heart won't stop giving him trouble. Following year, George voices a character in the 2006 Disney Pixar animated feature Cars. The character Fillmore is an anti-establishment hippie, uh, Volkswagen uh, microbus with a psychedelic paint job and the license plate 51237, Carlin's birthday. That's great. 2007, he voices the wizard and happily and ever after. 
That'll be his last film. Uh, Carlin's last HBO stand-up special is Bad For You. Airs live March 1st, 2008 from the Wells Fargo Center for the Arts in Santa Rosa, California. And it was, uh, I didn't see this one. It's pretty dark. More philosophical performance piece than comedy special. I liked it, but I would not recommend it as a place to start with his work. Themes included American bullshit, rights, death, old age, child rearing, <laughs> hating people who are, or, who are obese, basically. He repeated the, uh, the theme to his audience several times through the show that it's all bullshit and it's bad for you. Uh, June 18th, 2008, uh, at the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, uh, it names Carlin its 2008 Mark Twain Prize for American Humor honoree. And then just four days later, June 22nd, at the age of 71, Carlin dies of, of course, heart failure, St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California. His death occurred a week after his last performance at the Orleans Hotel and Casino in Vegas. He made it back to Vegas, did not get fired before he died. Impressive. In accordance with his wishes, his body cremated, his ashes scattered in front of various New York City nightclubs. Ha, ah, that's so cool. And over Spofford Lake, New Hampshire, where he had attended summer camp as a teen. That's so sweet, actually. Clearly special places in his heart. Uh, after his passing, everyone rushed to pay tribute to the man who had been so influential to comedy. Upon his death, HBO broadcast 11 of his 14 HBO specials from June 25th to the 28th, including a 12-hour marathon block on their HBO comedy channel. NBC scheduled a rerun of the premiere episode of SNL, where he hosted it, where they had to fucking kick the door in to, to find him because he was so high in coke. Before Sirius Satellite uh, Radio's, or both, excuse me, Sirius Satellite Radio's Raw Dog Comedy and uh, XM Comedy, uh, both the channels, ran a memorial marathon of George Carlin's recordings the day following his death. Sirius XM has since devoted an entire channel to Carlin, Carlin's Corner, featuring all his comedy albums, live concerts, works from his private archives. Uh, Larry King devoted his entire show, June 23rd, 2008, to a tribute to Carlin, featured interviews with Jerry Seinfeld, Bill Maher, Roseanne Barr, Louis Black, as well as Carlin's daughter, Kelly, and his brother, Patrick Jr. Uh, interesting to me, despite so many comics loving him while he was alive after the death of Lenny Bruce, you know, many years earlier, he really didn't hang out with uh, many other comics on a regular basis. Uh, June 24th, the New York Times printed an op-ed piece on Carlin written by Jerry Seinfeld. So well-written. It says, the honest truth is, For a comedian, even death is just a premise to make jokes about. I know this because I was on the phone with George Carlin nine days ago, and we were making some death jokes. We were talking about Tim Russert and Bo Diddley, and George said, I feel safe for a while. There will probably be a break before they come after the next one. I always like to fly on an airline right after they've had a crash. It improves your odds. You could certainly say that George downright invented modern American stand-up comedy in many ways. Every comedian does a little George. I couldn't even count the number of times I've been standing around with some comedians and someone talks about some idea for a joke and another comedian will say, Carlin does it. I've heard it my whole career. Carlin does it. Carlin already did it. Carlin did it eight years ago. And he didn't just do it. He worked over an idea like a diamond cutter with facets and angles and refractions of light. He made you sorry you ever thought you wanted to be a comedian. He was like a train hobo with a chicken bone. When he was done, there was nothing left for anybody. I became obsessed with him in the 1960s. As a kid, it seemed like the whole world was funny because of George Carlin. His performing voice, even laced with profanity, always sounded as if he were trying to amuse a child. It was like the naughtiest, most fun grown-up you ever met was reading you a bedtime story. I know George didn't believe in heaven or hell. Like death, they were just more comedy premises. And it just makes me even sadder to think that when I reach my own end, whatever tumbling, cataclysmic vortex of existence I'm spending through, in that moment, I will still have to think Carlin already did it. That is fucking great. Uh, for a number of years, uh, George has been co- compiling and writing his autobiography, 
to be released in conjunction with the one-man Broadway show tentatively titled New York Boy. After his death, Tony Hendra has collaborated on both projects, edited the autobiography for release as last words. The book chronicling uh, most of Carlin's life and future plans, including the, uh, including the one-man show, was published in 2009. It was a uh, huge source for this uh, episode. The abridged audio edition narrated by his uh, brother, Patrick Jr. I'm glad that happened. 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that the FCC can no longer impose fines and sanctions on verbal obscenities and decency. Carlin would have loved that about fucking time. October 22nd, 2014, a portion of West 121st Street in the Morningside Heights neighborhood of White Har- or White Harlem renamed George Carlin Way. This past April 16th, at the age of 90, Carlin's brother passes away, but not before he spoke at length in the new doc on Carlin. Patrick also funny as shit. Month later, this past May 20th, 2002, the documentary George Carlin's American Dream, directed by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio, released on HBO. And with that, let's jump out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. George Carlin, American icon. A complicated person person with his own demons, bad habits, far from perfect, but also a man who is on a continual quest to be truly authentic. And I respect that so much to live an authentic life and then share that with audiences. Carlin's career spanned half a century during which he headlined 14 HBO comedy specials, appearing on the Tonight Show over 130 times, constantly evolving with the time, staying sharp, resonance uh, up until his uh, death in 2008 and beyond. In some ways, I think he feels more relevant now than ever. He was a true free thinker who gave a, a brilliant and comedic voice to an indignant counterculture, a trailblazer like Lenny Bruce before him, who assaulted the barricades of censorship on behalf of a generation of comics that followed him. Upon his death, his website would include the quote, language is a tool for concealing the truth. If it was, for George, it was also a tool for revealing the truth, for opening people's minds, their eyes, provoking them, making them think about the forces that govern their lives in new ways. Carlin wouldn't be uh, truly comfortable with expressing all that until the 80s and 90s. It can take a while for us comics to get comfortable enough to peel enough layers off the onion to get to the core of who we are and then reveal that to strangers. It's, uh, it's quite a journey. His early career would be as uh, much about his professional life as a quest to know himself, first as a radio DJ during his time in the Air Force and after, then as a member of the Burns and Carlin duo touring nightclubs before striking out on his own, going on a number of TV shows where he perfected some of his early comedic bits like Indian Sergeant and Hippy Dippy Weatherman. He found mainstream comedic success, success but it was uh, not enough for George. It felt hollow. He didn't want to just be uh, on TV if it meant he had to pander to middle America. He wanted to make people think. He wanted to find an audience willing to think. That urge would lead him to a, a breakthrough. Hello, LSD, third eye open. By 1972, when he released his second album, FM and AM, his star was again on the rise. The album, which won a Grammy as a best comedy recording, combined older material with newer, more acerbic routines and groundbreaking groundbreaking routines like the profane seven words you can't, uh, you can never say on television. Uh, He took aim at what he thought of the prevailing, as the prevailing agents, excuse me, of American life, politicians, advertisements, uh, religion, the media, conventional thinking of all stripes. If there was one thing Carlin hated more than anything else, it may have been conventional thinking. He became a voice of resistance, wearing his jeans, t-shirts, always speaking what was on his mind. This would get him arrested several times, even see a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. George, still not done evolving or pushing the envelope. By the 80s, he really uh, became known as America's foremost, most scathing social critic. Also dealt with a lot of problems in the 80s. Issues with the IRS, drug problems, troubled marriage, fatherhood, health. 
But he gets sober, returned to the comedy scene to record his very best specials with HBO, cementing his status into the 90s as a comedy legend, modern-day philosopher as well. He'd be awarded and lauded so many times, too many times to recap here. He continues to influence comedians, thinkers, just about anyone with a bone to pick with American culture. And I fucking love him. And I hope you loved hearing about him. I love learning so much more about him. What he did for comedy made what I do possible. I could not get away with the shit I get away with saying if it had not been for Carlin, Bruce, Richard Pryor, Sam Kinison, Bill Hicks, so many others who said fuck you to people telling them they couldn't say fuck you. Free fucking speech made Sachs the First Amendment. Also in the First Amendment, other important freedoms like the freedom to worship whichever God you choose, freedom of religion. You should be able to pray to whoever God you choose and I should be able to mock that God whoever I choose. Verbally, that's freedom. Freedom to say whatever you want about anything, no matter how much it fucking pisses someone else off. No matter how sacred someone else may find it or offensive. Real freedom is not pretty. It's ugly. It's full of words like shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Hail freedom. And hail George motherfucking Carlin. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, George Carlin, a master of his craft. Oh, inspiration. Uh, A master of artistic transformation. He began as half a comedic duo doing sketches, then became clean mainstream nightclub comedian, then pivoted again towards the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, blending his observations about his own childhood and upbringing with a wider political consciousness and naughty words that got him in trouble repeatedly, eventually morphing into a comedic philosopher. And he had a huge audience for so much of that. Carlin never stopped thinking about how to reach the widest amount of people while also staying true to himself. That led to some turmoil in his life as he continually launched and relaunched, but also would make him one of the most famous comedians of the 20th century, if not the most, with an amazing 14 HBO specials, millions of, millions of copies of books sold, and a whole generation of comedians influenced by his work. Number two, Carlin's influences were many, but the most important ones were his upper-class mother who wanted him to speak like a proper little boy, leading to a lifelong fascination with swear words, and the Irish-American people in his childhood neighborhood of White Harlem, whom he learned to imitate to make his friends and classmates laugh, and of course, Patrick Swayze, who taught that motherfucker to dance like a beautiful angel. A sexy, graceful, swan angel creature sent down from heaven to gyrate his hips and flex his taut yet supple shoulders and pecs. Sorry, I meant to say Lenny Bruce. You knew that. Lenny Bruce introduced Carlin to the true counterculture scene. Number three, Carlin was put on trial for obscenity for his famous seven dirty words you can't say on TV routine, repeating the words shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits over and over again. And then on July 21st, 1972, Carlin arrested at Milwaukee Summerfest. Lucky that the cops didn't find coke in his pocket. He won the legal battle, then was involved in a subsequent legal battle in 1973 when a man complained to the FCC after listening to that routine. On the radio, the Supreme Court upheld the FCC action by a vote of 5-4, to four, ruling that the routine was indecent but not obscene, and that the FCC had authority to prohibit such broadcasts during hours when the, when the children were likely to be in the audience. But unlike his mentor Lenny Bruce, Carl didn't have to fight these fights himself, uh, which along with the crippling drug addiction eventually killed Bruce at the age of 40. And the world would catch up to Carlin's outspokenness, making him a legend. Number four, Carlin would die of heart failure. June 24th, 1998, he had a long, had long had problems with his heart, including several heart attacks, years of abusing cocaine, doing so much he thought the fucking sun was exploding. Did not help. And number five, new info. When Carlin was just starting out as a comedian, the internet, obviously not around, uh, he had no way of predicting the extent to which fake quotes would be misattributed to him. Uh, many online quotes have been falsely attributed to Carlin, including various joke lists, rants, other pieces. Basically, some people figured that Carlin was so prolific and had such a distinctive style that they could attribute whatever they wanted to him. 
and then a bunch of other people would buy it. The website Snopes has addressed these hoaxes. There's many of them. Many of them contain material that run counter to Carlin's viewpoints. Some are especially volatile towards racial groups, gay people, women, homeless, other targets. Carlin was aware of some of these bogus claims before he died and debunked them on his own site, writing, here's a rule of thumb, folks. Nothing you see on the internet is mine unless it comes from one of my albums, books, HBO specials, or appeared on my website. It bothers me that some people might believe that I'd be capable of writing some of this stuff. Weirdo Yankovic even referenced the hoaxes in his song Stop Forwarding That Crap to Me with the line, and by the way, your quotes from George Carlin aren't really George Carlin. One was a piece called Bad American. It starts like this. I'm your worst nightmare. I am a bad Republican. I like big cars, big cigars, and naturally big racks. I believe the money I make belongs to me and my family, not some mid-level governmental functionary with a bad comb-over who wants to give it away to crack addicts squirting out babies. I don't care about appearing compassionate. I think playing with guns doesn't make you a killer. I believe it's called the Boy Scouts for a reason. I think I'm better than the homeless. I am not the real Slim Shady, so I think that I'm going to stay seated right here in this damn comfy chair. I don't think being a minority makes you noble or victimized. I don't care if you call me a racist, a homophobe, or a misogynist. I am not tolerant of others because they are different. I know that no matter how big Jennifer Lopez's toilet gets, I'll still want to see it. If anyone thought that Carlin said that, they were really not familiar with his general vibe. Time suck. Top five takeaways. George motherfucking Carlin has been sucked. Thank you again for picking that winner. Patreon Space Lizards. So glad to have the best excuse to learn so much about such an amazing person. Uh, also, thank you to the Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., for, for directing and producing today. Staying late to do so. Logan Keith for helping him set up. Thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, Logan Keith again, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. Helping on our socials along with the Suck Ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. So many people. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans. Initial research this week. Thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad making shit on Discord. Keep running smooth. Everyone at the uh, Time Sucks subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. So many fantastic sacks doing a lot of great things. Next ep- uh, next week, next episode, both would have been fine if I would have just picked one. Uh, we return to Cult, Cult, Cult. Diving back into the realm of cults with a little known but very murderous group from Uganda, the 1990s. The movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God was a small splinter group from the greater Ugandan Catholic community whose members' lives would end in uh, terrible, brutal ways. The group founded by Credonia Morinde, uh, a former sex worker who claimed to receive visions from the Virgin Mary. Uh, when she met Joseph, could we t- uh, I'm going I'm to get these names better next week. Uh, Kiwa Kiwe Tate in 1989, a religious man and somewhat of a local politician, the two quickly developed a vision of a world where the apocalypse was imminent unless they didn't get people to follow the Ten Commandments. In practice, though, it was a lot different than honor thy fa- uh, father and mother. Instead of going to church, receiving communion, members lived on the cult's compounds, mostly pineapple and banana plantations, gave up their assets, of course, standard cult practice, agreed to a life without sex, uh, and also soap, oftentimes, and sometimes you know, even taking uh, you know showers or talking. All of this as Credonia claimed to receive messages from the Virgin Mary through hidden through a hidden telephone system. They communicated to her through everyday objects. Interesting. As the years passed, the group's messages got more and more apocalyptic, predicting bloodshed and chaos, cannibalism, monsters from hell, plagues and pests, a lot of fun stuff. Movement leaders declared that the apocalypse would occur on December 31st, 1999. Uh, Much like many who believed Y2K would bring about the end of society, a young member of the cult even declared the world ends next year. There is no time to waste. Some of our leaders talked directly to God. 
any minute from now, when the end comes, every believer who will be at, at an as yet undisclosed spot will be saved. But then, of course, that didn't happen. Three months later, roughly a thousand people, though, will die at the cult's hands. How did that happen? Why isn't it more well known? What crazy beliefs did these leaders peddle to people who've been struggling for years, struggling to make ends meet in a nation with a poor economy ravaged by an AIDS crisis and a brutal dictator? And is it possible that they escaped the fate of their followers and are still out there somewhere? All that and more next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. First update today is from me. Quick note on last week's episode. Uh, I intended to, but did not mention a man named John Banning who, according to author Fred Rosen, was the second man to survive an encounter with old Ronnie Joe, Ronald Dominique, the Bayou Strangler. Uh, That happened in November of 2005. It was accidentally deleted when editing the timeline. It goes through so many revisions. Sorry about that. Uh, It doesn't change the episode. Uh, No one has written in as I record this because it hasn't been released. Uh, Just mention it in case you were like, hey, didn't he say that Ronnie Joe and his overblown bubblegum butthole uh, killed all but two of those he brought back to his camper trailer but then only mentioned one dude, Ricky Wallace. Well, that was a great catch, imaginary listener. Uh, but yeah, just wanted to correct that. Uh, now for some comedy before we get to a more serious message. This is from uh, Cummins Lod Meets Zach, Cody George, who writes, Dear Dan and the Time Stick Crew, I've listened to all the podcasts for the past two years while working at my job at UPS as a package handler, slowly climbing the ranks. This podcast keeps me sane, gets me through uh, working in these 110 degree trailers. That being said, I'm a Cummins Law victim now, and my case happens to have happened at my work. I have a clear backpack full of drinks that I take with me and put outside my trailer as I work. I keep my phone in there, listen to the podcast with my wireless earbuds. Well, as I'm listening, they accidentally disconnect right as the podcast is ending and the outro is playing. And I started again with my smartwatch, not thinking that it will loudly uh, at ear level outside of my trailer on my phone uh, when my supervisor is walking up, play you saying, now I come almost every day. If I stop coming, I would think two months tops, someone's getting killed. He stops to listen and then hears you scream, do you have any idea how blue my balls are? <laughs> After he gets an earful of this, he finally walks around the corner. I see him with a look on his face that I have never seen before. I hope that made your day. If you happen to read this on the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you gave a shout out to my brother, Tyler George, for getting me into the suck. He used to be a dick, but I guess he's all right now, LOL. Thanks for all the hard work you put in everything you do. Fuck you, fuck your family, Cody George. Thanks for sharing your pain with me, Cody. I appreciate it. And fuck Tyler. For uh, for leading you into this weird world. Almost getting you fired. That's what his real plan was. No, seriously, thanks, Tyler. And thanks, Cody, for helping us all get the shit that makes our lives work, uh, you know, uh, being delivered right to our homes for, uh, thanks for doing what you do. Uh, now an update to the Catholic Church sex scandal suck, which just came out yesterday as I record this. Uh, coming in from a sweet Canadian sucker, Kayla, who writes, Good day, Master Sucker. I'm a Newfoundlander, space lizard, writing to give you some more information about the absolutely appalling behaviors of Catholic priests and the cover-ups by the church. Open in 1898, Mount Cashel Boys' Home, a.k.a. Mount Cashel Orphanage, was run by the Irish Christian Brothers of the Roman Catholic Church. In 1989, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, ah, sorry, I'm I'm probably butchering that word, uh, reopened investigations of child abuse from 1975 at the home and the, quote, public learned that the foster home had for decades been the site of repeated acts of physical and sexual abuse performed by Christian brothers against boys who lived there as wards of the state. Religious authorities were aware of the abuse, did little, if anything, to quell the misconduct. The crimes were covered up for years with the assistance of police and local government. Damn, 
Growing up, I lived down the road from and played with the daughters of Derek O'Brien, who wrote the book Suffer Little Children, an autobiography of the abuse he suffered as a child in relation to this. My dad luckily never grew up in such conditions, but has told me with the uh, stories of the terror that came along with besmirching a member of the clergy, you did not speak ill of priests no matter what, or you'd be punished severely by your parents, teachers, or other adults who were meant to protect you. Currently, the Catholic Church is in the process of selling many religious buildings to pay the reparations awarded to the victims, as if the Vatican couldn't cover this cost easily without putting the burden of their misconduct cover-up on parishioners. The Catholic Church is the absolute epitome of hypocrisy and is a major reason I do not believe in organized religion. Keep sucking. I hope Lucifina personally ensures pedophiles roast slowly. Your loyal space is Kayla. Well, thank you, Kayla. I mean, it is... It is just so disheartening. It's just scandal after scandal after scandal. Government's protecting the church in some instances. No church should ever have the power over its parishioners that the Catholic church has had for centuries. Not as much now, but in centuries past. No group of men should hold the keys to the path of salvation for others, uh, have that kind of power. And I hope going forward more and more, we burn down those who scare innocent people into thinking that they do. It's just, it's too much power. And power does corrupt. And that much power corrupts so horrifically as we've seen. Uh, Now, finally, for a borderline personality update regarding my description of it in the murder of the D.D. Rose suck, uh, coming in from complete and utter maniac and evil little rat, Kaylee. Kaylee Allen writes, somehow, with her little rat claws. Howdy, motherfucker. (laughs) Sir, I adore you. But you were wilding out describing borderline personality disorder. I've been diagnosed with this since I was 14. I'm 23 now. And have been on a variety of medications along with therapy. And here is a little insight of a very little research disorder. You got some things right. Emotionally unregulated, intense emotions, deep abandonment issues. However, uh, manipulative is not a way at all to describe a person with borderline personality. In my experience with therapy in my everyday life, uh, we see things and people in terms of black and white. Instead of trying everything to keep people from abandoning us, uh, we try to abandon everything else first and become a model person because we also see ourselves as good or evil. Within one hour, I can go from thinking a person walks on water to thinking they might be just as evil as Hitler, all because I found out they spanked their children or associate with people I believe are also evil. Before therapy, I knew absolutely no one in the gray area. I either loved or hated everyone I knew uh, and how I felt about each person was constantly changing. We are often confused with people who have bipolar disorder, but instead of having weeks of depression, weeks of mania, we have these extreme feelings and more within an hour or so. I've had experiences where I've had lunch with my mom. We've laughed, joked, had a great time, but I thought her facial expressions didn't match what she was saying. So she left thinking we had the best time. I left thinking she only wanted to hang out with me to get knowledge of me and use it to hurt me later on. Obviously, I was being delusional, but in the moment, it felt very, very real. The best way I can describe living with BPD is like living life with a veil on and one day the veil gets removed. Then because of that, it feels like you can see between the lines of every action. But half the time, there weren't lines there to see between. It's like having a gut feeling about everyone and everything, but half the time, you only have that feeling because of a delusion. Everything is scary and unpredictable, especially people because people are the only things that, you are, that are guaranteed to hurt you. Just a little insight because I felt like you made it seem like evil little rats and that we want to manipulate everyone to get what we want slash hurt everyone around us with little to no compassion or reason. May Nimrod be with you, Kaylee Allen. Well, Kaylee, thank you for both the phonetic help with your name. You know, my brain uh, uh, does not assume well in that regard. And thank you for humanizing this disorder. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like manipulative, uh, manipulative, poor chores, poor choice of words. Words are hard. Uh, genuinely sorry you have to fight your mind like that in daily interactions. Uh, good on you for taking the time to understand your mind. 
navigate around uh, misleading instincts. I, I can't imagine how difficult that is. I'm very impressed, truly. So yeah, so sorry if my depiction painted uh, those with that disorder as uh, evil. Uh, unfortunately, many of those who who have it, according to what I've read in both true crime stories and psychological journals, do not combat the disorder well and instead do end up greatly harming those around them due to their paranoia and uh, maybe maybe instability, uh, a better word than man- manipulation. I should have at least addressed how hard life can be to navigate uh, from the point of view of someone who has it and shown more compassion in that regard. Great reminder for me to do so. So hail you, Kaylee Allen, and uh, may Nimrod help you continue to overcome and push forward. And that's all for today. That was a lot of words, maybe the biggest episode yet. I think my mouth's about done. It was a big one uh, and a fun one. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast is done. Say, uh, say fuck this week. Or cunt. Or cocksucker. Or tits. The world won't end and it uh, might feel good. Say, fuck those cunt politicians on both sides of the aisle who uh, do so much more to divide instead of unite us. Carlin would like that. I think he'd also like you to uh, keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. I would like to now say the uh, seven dirty words you, you can't say on Time Suck. Uh, just kidding uh, I'm not going to say uh, the seven dirty words you can't say on uh, time suck because those words oh man would just be uh, morally fucking horrific BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the US economy in 2022 Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.